Podcast. Facebook was so much worse than I had any idea it could be. No one actually gets to see how Facebook is functioning. You know, if you start a fight in a post, you're going to get much, much more distribution than someone who does a calm response. If your kid uses social media for more than three hours a day, they're at double or triple the risk of getting depression or anxiety. The average kid in the United States uses these products for three and a half hours a day. Zuckerberg himself refused to address these major problems. Mark has had to be the CEO since he was 19. He's the chairman of the board, which means that he is also his own boss. He lives in an echo chamber. We're not citizens on our social platforms. We are subjects of a king. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm joined by Francis Haugen, a data engineer, a scientist, and former lead product manager on the Facebook civic misinformation team. But she is most widely known as the whistleblower during the 2021 Facebook files. In an effort to stop Facebook's complicity in the radicalization and instigation of political violence around the world, Francis copied tens of thousands of pages of internal Facebook documents, which revealed that the social media giant knew it had accidentally changed its algorithm to reward extremism, all while refusing to fix it, and knew its customers were using the platform to foment violence, spread falsehoods, and more. Francis testified before Congress about this. She spoke plenty to the media. She was hailed at President Biden's first State of the Union address. She made sure everyone understood exactly what the document showed. And she set an example for standing in truth and doing what is right for the greater good. She has since written a compelling and comprehensive book about that experience entitled The Power of One, which obviously provides the subtext and the basis for today's exchange. A few more things I want to say about Francis and the conversation to come, but first. We all get it. Sometimes the news can really wear you down. That's why Wildcard, a new podcast from NPR, feels like a solution. It's an interview show that gives a special deck of cards to a whole bunch of fascinating guests, all in the hopes of sorting out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, all party game. Wildcard comes out every Thursday from NPR. Listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. We're brought to you today by Brain FM. You know that thing when you have a bunch of intense work that you just have to do, but the mind doesn't really want to do it? You're telling it, come on, focus, but it keeps getting distracted or agitated by nonsense, and you go through this painful sort of mini war to rein it in, to settle it down, and just concentrate on the thing. Wouldn't it be great if there was something that would ease or eliminate this process? I don't know, like something you put in your brain through your ears? That would be great. And the good news is that it does exist. It's called Brain.fm, which is this sonic platform that leverages science to create tunes specifically crafted to optimize brain performance for a specific task. Tunes that contain patterns that shift your brain state with something even more effective than binaural beats called neural entrainment. So that you can more easily focus on that thing or lure you into the sleep that persistently eludes you. 
Personally, I notice it the most when I sit down to write. Typically, this experience floods me with anxiety and a near lethal dose of the big R resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about. But now I pop on the headphones, I dial up brain.fm, click the focus feature, and the process becomes, I mean, look, writing is still hard, but now it really is so much easier to get into that state of flow and stay there. So if you're ready to unlock your focus and productivity, I've got a special offer just for you. I asked them to give my listeners 30 days free and you can get it at brain.fm slash richroll. I bet you'll love it just as much as I do. Okay, Francis. In this conversation, Francis shares the nuanced impact of social media platforms on society. We talk about how algorithms prioritize extreme content and lack proper moderation. We explore the tools available to combat these issues, as well as the need for intentional product design choices to prioritize user consent and reduce misinformation and hate speech online. Ultimately, Francis left me with a surprising sentiment, a belief that we can have social media that brings out the best in humanity. Now that is a hopeful sentiment, and I think you will in turn also find this conversation surprisingly hopeful. It's fascinating, I loved having it. I really enjoyed Francis, so without further ado, here we go. This is me and Francis Haugen. I appreciate you coming here to share. Um, the book, The Power of One, is out everywhere, easy to find. We'll link it up in the show notes and all of that. Um, well, let's walk through the history of this a little bit mm-hmm. um, for people that aren't super familiar with your arc and begin with why you even joined Facebook mm-hmm. to begin with. Mm-hmm. Like what was attractive about going to work at Facebook? Mm-hmm. Because at the time, it, it wasn't that long ago, it was 2019, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There was already a lot of stuff, yeah, alarming things about, about Facebook at the time that for the sort of uneducated person about your life would make one think like, well, why did she even go there? Um, so back in my late 20s, early 30s, so I went into the hospital in two, 2014, so I was 29 years old. And um, I, my health had been declining for a couple of years. So I went from being able to ride um, 125 miles on a bike in a day to being in a wheelchair in two and a half years. So I go in the hospital and I find out that I have a, a foot long clot in my leg. That's like the girth of like a cigar that's been growing there for like two years. I find out that um, I have not been actually um, being careful enough about my diet. So I have something called celiacs. So I'm allergic to gluten. And I was so malnourished, my protein synthesis had stopped. So I was, I was starving to death, even though I'd gained a hundred pounds, which mm-hmm. sounds so counterintuitive. And I ended up, um, uh, it took me, you know, 15 months to relearn to walk. And even when I went back to my job, I was still only just functional enough that like I could work all day, come home and then sit on the couch. And so I hired an assistant who was a friend of my younger brother's and um, he became like essential to my recovery. So he would take me like on long walks. He uh, like liked to lift weights. So he like coached me about protein and macros and stuff like that. And in 2016, uh, Bernie Sanders lost the primary. And, and my friend, like he, 
he, he kind of like fell into the dark corners of the internet. Like he wanted to commiserate. He really felt that, that Bernie had been wronged. And uh, he began to have a lot of conspiratorial thinking. And I remember how painful it was. Like when, when the Facebook recruiter reached out to me in like late 2018, early 2019, and was like, hey, do you wanna work at Facebook? The thing I said to her, cause like I really didn't care if I got the job or not, right? Like, like you said, Facebook had a bad reputation by the time I joined it. Mm -hmm. uh, I said, the only thing I would work on is misinformation because like watching him divorce himself from our shared reality was uh, just excruciating for How me. How deep did it go for him? Uh, and he ended up uh, moving to Indiana with some people who I, I think are questionable. Um, and I, it's interesting, like the thing that saved him was he, he met a nice girl and he like started going to church again and like, he's fine today, but like, you know, he, he was definitely running with some people who uh, have some pretty extreme political beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so I, I always try to slightly guard his privacy because it's not my story. To right, know. sure, yeah. of course. So that experience with yeah. that close friend was a motivating factor mm -hmm. in you being interested in the possibility of participating in the solution. Like Facebook's not going away. Yeah. If you're inside that machine, perhaps you can pull some levers and I think it's right also, the ship. It's also one of these things where like I talk about in the book, the idea, and, and I'm not trying to brag here, like the idea that we have hundreds, hundreds of people in the world who understand really how these algorithmic systems work and the intersections of it. When I make this product choice, you know, when I decide that a post should go to the top of your feed with every new comment, like how do those two things interact with each other? Um, you know, when, the person said like, hey, we do have a job for you. You could do civic misinformation. It put me in like a really hard place because on one side, like I had felt like this really intense loss and, and it scared me, right? Like he was a smart, college educated, funny, insightful, empathetic person. And he still like uh, spiraled off enough that like we would have fights over like, does George Soros run the world economy, mm -hmm. right? Like, like stuff that any reasonable person would be like, no, he does not. You know, there's no space lasers, like, you know, like, you know, there's no lizard people. And- I'm uh, envisioning the uh, comments on YouTube below this this video. Yeah, there's gonna be a bunch of people, people. Who, who might disagree with you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good. We should have a conversation. We should have software that facilitates conversations, um, not screaming at each other. But um, so I, I, I felt that um, on one side, you know, if you ha know that you're in a small group of people who can do something, and that, that thing could actually impact a lot of people's lives. And you don't wanna do it. How do you navigate like feeling like you have an obligation to at least do a tour of duty? And so like, I never thought that like, I was the only one that could save the day, but it was like, you know, there's a relatively small number of people. I'm not gonna go work in Washington, right? Like I'm not gonna move there, but I'm willing to do, you know, two years, three years and work on this problem. And then I could say, I, I at least uh, did, did my part. Mm -hmm. And I ended up there and um, it was just so much worse than I had any idea it could be. Um, because like I, like I said before, I had never really thought about inter the international implications of Facebook. Like I, I didn't even think I was gonna work on the international stuff. I thought I was gonna work on the United States. Um, and so it, it spiraled very quickly. So walk me through the progressive disillusionment mm -hmm. and you know, in, in specific terms, like what did you encounter? Sure. Um, so I showed up, and um, you know, it was like a couple of different levels of where I was like, something is profoundly wrong. So like on the, the organizational level, um, you know, like I said, like you mentioned, I have an MBA from Harvard. 
Um, I show up- With a focus on organizational structures, like yeah. that's your jam. Organizational health, yeah. yeah. Um, I wa- uh, have you ever seen the TV show Silicon Valley? Yeah. So I can't, I, I, I failed to watch all of season one because it's not a comedy, it's a documentary. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like there's a lot of things they play for laughs where I'm like, oh, I watched that happen. That is not nearly as funny as you think it is. Mm. Um, but the, um, uh, but yeah, so I, I, I really care about how organizations function and, um, and I show up and they tell me the very first week. So they put me in this boot camp for product managers and for people who are not familiar with technology or how like software's written. You know, you have software engineers and you have people who work with the software engineers whose job is to kind of articulate what is the problem we're trying to solve and kind of segment that problem and the solution to the problem into like the actual discrete set of steps where like, we're gonna solve this, then we're gonna solve this, then we're gonna solve this. And together we're gonna ladder up to the thing we're trying to accomplish. And so I, I show up and they say, hey, you know, you think you know how to do your job, but Facebook is enough different than how other tech companies work that we have learned if we don't put you in this two week boot camp, the chance that you're just gonna like burn out and fail in the next six months is too high. Mm-hmm. So for the next two weeks, we're gonna teach you how to Facebook. And I get like maybe four days into this boot camp, and my manager's like, hey, we don't have time for you to go to boot camp. You need to come and give us the plan for what we're gonna do with civic misinformation for the next six months. So I've, I've just come to the company. That's red flag number red one. Red flag number one, right? Um, I've just come to the company. I know nothing about Facebook's problems. My teammates have never worked in this space, right? So three of my, enge- my, my only three engineers are front end engineers. So that's like people who figure out how to lay out the buttons and plumb it all together so the information goes to the right places. My data scientist is new to the company. My engineering manager is new to the company. We have no idea what's going on but we are expected to come up with a plan in the next like five days that we're gonna present to like all the leadership of the safety team. So that's the first red flag. Second red flag is I hadn't really thought, so so one, I had not thought about the idea of Facebook being the internet, Mm -hmm. but I hadn't really thought about the implications of, you know, when the internet comes to a new place, how does that change the place, right? Like when we got the, like in the United States, when we got the internet, it started in the eighties Right, and you know, started a few Ivy League schools, a few departments. You know, it progressively flowed down a gradient of privilege. You know, it went out to more and more universities. It went out beyond the universities into the public. You know, on and on and on. Um, but it took, you know, a solid twenty years. And and what's happening in a lot of other countries is like people are becoming literate to use Facebook. Right. That 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 one of the the first experiences I had was we were supposed to sit down and come up with how we were gonna measure success. And we had, we had a hard problem because we were specifically not working on third party fact checking. So that's like people who do um, like say, this is, a, this is not true. Mm-hmm. Like we were gonna work anywhere in the world where there were not fact checkers, which is actually most of the world. Facebook mostly goes in and does that like after the fact cleanup in like the United States and Europe. Um, and so someone suggested, well, what if we looked at expressions of doubt so like if you see something that looks off and you make a comment saying, uh, I don't think that's true, or I think that's misinformation. You know, we could count up those. And if the number went down, we were doing a good job. And one of our researchers uh, said, you know, that sounds really obvious. Like that sounds like it would be a thing that would work, except for when we went in and de- did interviews in India, people are coming online so fast that when we talk to people with master's degrees, so these are smart, educated people, they say things like, 
why would someone put something fake on the internet? That sounds like a lot mm -hmm. of work. And, and so just imagine I'm in this context. So smart people yeah. who are getting onboarded onto the internet yeah. through the lens of Facebook and, 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 yeah. and basically Facebook only without adequate uh, discernment tools to or, understand, or, to be yeah. internet literate. I, the way I like to put it is like, uh, we don't realize that shit posters are actually like a cultural treasure. Right, like like our our like twenty years of people saying random shit on the internet makes us have a certain amount of doubt of being like, oh, you you can't you can't just forward things. Uh -huh. Like people will laugh at you if you just forward things. In a lot of these places, um, you know, people believe that the information on Facebook is more trustworthy because it came from a friend. Right, like if your friend sent it, then it should you should trust it because you have that connection. Um, and so that's just like- And there's an understanding yeah. that we've gone through that maturation process yeah. of, of kind of understanding shitposting versus reality on yeah. some base level, on some base even level. if not great, at not least yet. some, right? Yeah, exactly. And when you think about the developing world in that very different picture mm -hmm. uh, in the context of, of Facebook proudly announcing how much money it's spending on, on third party fact checking, et cetera, but not understanding or appreciating that the gravamen of that, those resources are being poured into the developed world, yeah. right? And, and for various reasons are not doing much of anything in the developing world, language barriers, resources, mm -hmm. et cetera. I think another thing that is important for context for people is like, I hadn't really thought about um, linguistic diversity. So like, if you look at a country like Ethiopia, you know, in the abstract, it's like, oh, a country far away. They have a hundred million people. 120 million people. Uh, they have 95 dialects, six main language families. You know, you have a problem there where where when you have when we focus on content moderation instead of trying to make the systems a little safer by default. So that's things like should you have to click on a link before you reshare it? Like just that knocks down misinformation by 10 or 15%. Or saying, you know, we don't have infinite reshare chains. We say it gets a few hops away from you. And now you have to copy and paste. You have to intentionally share it further. That's like 30% less misinformation. Mm -hmm. You know, those kinds of things are systematic. Everywhere in the world gets the benefit. When we instead focus on censorship, you know, content moderation, we have to rewrite those systems language by language by language. And there's ways that we could do that hypothetically in a scalable way. Like we could decentralize out how we generate the labels. But at least the way it's done today, places like Ethiopia just get left behind. I can't imagine though, even in the best circumstances that deploying human resources to, <laughs> to, you know, to handle this job is, is ever gonna be successful. It's, it's an impossible task to do it that way. And I think the problem that comes up is, is the context mm. in which this debate is framed, which is one of free speech versus mm. safety. Mm -hmm. And a big part of what you talk about is, the falseness of that that binary. So it's it's really interesting. Like that that I think is the thing that keeps us from moving forward in the United States is that you know enough Facebook executives have gone in front of Congress and said, oh everything you everything you're talking about is so sad, but you know it's this fundamental divide between free speech and safety. Or like Mark Zuckerberg has gone on podcasts like this and said, you know I've 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 really grown in the last few years because I've realized when you stand up for what you believe in. You know, it can be really hard, and and I'm a defender of free speech. You know, the the thing that's frustrating for me is is you know this question of you 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 nailed it earlier. 
when we have, when we prioritize content from our family and friends, you spend a little bit less time on Facebook. You know, your family and friends are not quite as exciting as whatever that magical post is the algorithm found for you, right? Or um, really tantalizing content keeps you on there a little bit longer, but also has more violence or misinformation. Mm -hmm. Having systems where we say, hey, you have to actually just be public about everything, like about what's happening on your systems. Then you can begin putting pressure on things, having protests, having boycotts, having divestment campaigns. And that provides a counterweighting balance beyond just profit and loss. Mm -hmm. Because right now, you know, like we, we talked about cutting the research chains and you know, saying, hey, you know, if it gets more than a couple hops away, you, you, you have to start over, copy and paste it say whatever you want, but you have to do it, not just your instinct. Um, you know, right now, you know, that's not a huge hit to profit. It's maybe 0.1, 0.2%. But uh, right now, there's no number value placed on reducing misinformation by 30%. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have to quantify that as a societal cost. Right, and it, it, is, it is amazing how much energy there is behind this free speech argument, given that these are private entities. Yeah. And there's the town square argument, mm -hmm. but that feels very porous to me that it just, mm -hmm. it just feels like- We're trying to document it all right now, but it, it's looking like they censored my book on Facebook. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> like they, um, my publisher usually can um, like mark up like with a buy button, all the other books they sell. Yeah. And, and mine violated the commerce policy. How so? Because uh, it's from me. <laughs> oh, yeah, because as a, dot, as a yeah. data scientist, you're gonna wanna know like yeah. where, who, who's buying the book, where yeah. are they buying it and what platforms are they yeah. using to purchase yeah. it from? And if you're not seeing any, any traffic coming from Facebook, that's a pretty clear indication so, that so they're throttling question, you. you know, this question, I, I have a lot of empathy for the idea of the town square, right? They are, the primary place where people communicate. And, and in the United States, like I, I, I actually really dislike it when um, like more societal elites say like, does Facebook matter? Because like there is a huge fraction of the American populace that still uses Facebook as their primary way of communicating with each other. And so I, I have empathy on the question of like, what should you be allowed to take down or, or not? But for, for context today, we don't get to see what they take down. Mm. Right, there's no transparency on how any of these censorship systems work. Right, we don't get to see what posts are being left up or taken down. Mm. That's so interesting. So mm -hmm. on the one hand, we have evidence or a sense yeah. that you're being throttled on Facebook in terms of the, the word at getting least, out about the book. The, at least the buy button. We don't right. know beyond okay. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, you can't get that buy button up yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, and then on the other hand, and I have to believe this is a direct response to your work and the fact that the book has just come out. Um, I think it was, was it yesterday or maybe even today, Facebook announced all these parental controls. Oh, really? Did you see this? No, I haven't seen it. Meta just announced mm -hmm. they're adding new safeguards and monitoring tools for teens across its social platforms. Parental controls on Messenger, suggestions for teens to step away from Facebook after 20 minutes and nudges urging young night owl Instagrammers to stop scrolling. So this is good. Yeah, this is positive right change. Direction. The timing is yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, this is these ideas are not new. These are these are ideas that you've spoken about yeah. and and suggested. It's just interesting that they're happening at this moment. The the thing that um interested me so much was after I came out, they doubled the amount they spent on safety. Like they came out and they said, "We've heard we heard the criticism. We're going to spend twice as much on safety." 
And then in the last six months, um, uh, you know, after Elon Musk showed that you could lose 75% of your employees and there were no consequences, you know, Mark himself came out and said, you know, Elon really set an example. Like we, we can have a year of efficiency um, and fire 20,000 people. And, and uh, I find it really funny that the thing that is making them start thinking, or at least publicly making gestures towards doing more safety is I, I started being noisier again. Yeah, and, and Elon's cuts uh, involved the safety teams, they right? Did. The safety teams got cut. Uh, but they did the same thing at Facebook. They like did. I, I've had um, some of my favorite researchers are no longer at the company mm. um, and it wasn't because it was their choice. So, so we'll but see. so when they, yeah. when they, when they talk yeah. about these large investments that they're making, yeah. In, in safety, then how does that match up against mm. the layoffs or what does that actually mean? Well, if you'll notice, like a lot of those changes are, are relatively superficial, right? They're, they're, I, there's no way that took more than 10 or 20 engineers to build, right? Mm. And, and the second thing is we don't actually know the efficacy of any of those interventions. Like imagine a world where Facebook said, hey, we know that sleep deprivation is the single largest danger from our products for kids. Right, so sleep deprivation for those who have not like dug into literature, uh, it puts kids at big risks of academic deficits, which stays with them for the rest of their life. It puts them at higher risk for mental health issues, not just depression and anxiety, but also things like bipolar or schizophrenia. Uh, increases the rates of substance use, uppers because they're tired, downers because they're depressed, and rates of death from accidents. So like not just automotive accidents, but like all cause mm. accident rates. You know, Facebook could come out and say, we acknowledge what a large role we play in kids' lives. We're gonna start publishing a very simple set of data each week. It's gonna take us 15 minutes to do, like once, and after that, I'll just update over time. And we're gonna say, how many kids are online at 10, 11, midnight, one, two, 3 a.m.? And we're gonna do it every week. If they were doing that, if they were really serious about these problems, you know, it doesn't violate anyone's privacy, but we'd be able to see, did those numbers move when they launched those things? Mm -hmm. And as long as they refuse to release even basic data, like we should consider all of these moves marketing. Otherwise, we're just taking them at their word. Well, it's also things like, um, uh, and uh, Antigone Davis came and talked to Facebook, um, I think the week before I, uh, excuse me, talked to the Senate, the week before I, I came out. Mm -hmm. And she bragged about how Facebook took seriously the issues around body image. And they had a, a little thing that would pop up if they thought someone was at risk for an eating disorder. And like, I intentionally, you know, took pictures of the dashboard that showed how often that triggered. And so globally, it was triggering a couple hundred times a day, right? So it's one of these things where if you're gonna get up there and brag about how serious you take this problem and then do an intervention that touches maybe 1% of kids affected, like, like we shouldn't give you too much right. credit. Um, what do you make of Elon's Twitter? Mm. Um, there are certain things that I'm super excited about. So things like um, he published the algorithm, right? And, and he didn't just publish the algorithm, he published the history of the algorithm. Mm -hmm. And for anyone who writes code, your code in the past was always worse than the code in the present, right? Um, the, one of the, the sad parts though, is he's done things like cut off data access. So Twitter used to be significantly more transparent than Facebook. Right. He turned off the API. 
uh, or he started charging cost prohibitive amounts for the API. Sure. So he and could, then Reddit followed in suit with yeah. that, and there is an argument yeah. there, like, hey, we we're sitting on all this data, you know, why we should, should we it. make it open yeah. to you know all of these AI tools to yeah. crawl it? Like, this is this is our value as a company. They should at least be charged for it. Like that, there is an economic totally. argument for that. But I think the, the they could be making exceptions for for critical public safety roles. So mm-hmm. there are um, a handful of academics that were actively monitoring for things like influence operations. So so one of the ways in which social media is now used in warfare is you have networks of accounts that go and spread misinformation, and and I um, I worry a lot more about. Uh, organized spreading of misinformation than say your uncle believing odd things, mm-hmm. right? There've always been people who believed odd things. They go to dinner parties, they say those odd things, we talk to them about it. Um, when you have organized efforts with thousands of people spreading a lie, it, it, it changes the balance of power and they have a disproportionate uh, impact compared to an individual saying something. It used to be, Academics could monitor for those coordinated efforts, and it was the Twitter data was so important that oper, influence operations on Facebook would get detected with the Twitter data mm-hmm. that they would see accounts with the same names operating on Facebook, mm-hmm. or Twitter would send the IP addresses over. And Elon could be coming out and saying, "Hey, if you are doing one of these vital public safety jobs for free, basically, you can apply and get the same access you got before." Right. Right. So as a result, people like Rene DeResta, Tristan exactly. Harris, uh, who have organizations dedicated to kind of you know reviewing all of yeah. this stuff and trying to make Tristan, sense of it. I don't think Tristan I mean, does, but Rene does. does. Rene does, right? So now yeah. she she doesn't have access yeah. to the information that she had prior. The um, I'm a, a fellow at McGill this year, uh-huh. and um, like they had a huge um, like voter disenchant- disenfranchisement monitoring effort. Uh, a bunch of other public health related monitoring things. And uh, they had to stop basically all their research because it's like $40,000 a month mm-hmm. now to get access to that data. Okay, so opened the algorithm, closed the API. Yeah. What else has he done? Like, and how are you yeah. making sense of it? I think his efforts around subscription models is super interesting. So for context for people, if Facebook had had a subscription model back in 2010, you know, we probably would have never diverged from that version of Facebook. You know, the version of Facebook in 2010 was about our family, it was about our friends. It was much more human scaled because there wasn't, an, uh, but because there, it's an advertising supported business model, they had an economic incentive to get us to view more and more and more content. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm very interested <clears throat> in how his subscription experiment will play out because it, it is having the side effect of it is, um, the level of conversation is definitely not as rich as it used to be. And the fact that he biases towards subscribers has distorts that again. But the flip side is, I like where the incentives are aligned. Mm-hmm. Like, um, but the secondary thing is it also creates a larger barrier to entry for accounts. Like you right. don't have to pay eight, you know, $8 a month for that account. Right. So on the one hand, you know, political dissidents in in non-democratic regions who need a level of anonymity and access are going to have a more difficult time, you know, getting the word out in the way that they need to. Uh, On the other hand, I like the subscription model and it makes one wonder what would have happened if at the onset Mm -hmm. or the inception of the internet, 
that that became the the primary model as opposed to an advertising model, yeah. the internet would be completely Very different. different and we would have a better incentive structure that would not have created a lot of the problems that we're contending with today. And I don't know how you unravel such a massive knot. I mean, yeah. advertising is how this whole operation functions, yeah. Um, yeah. but to the extent that, and it's hard to reverse engineer it. Once yeah. that's out of the bag, how do you go to subscription? Totally. You capture a small percentage of the audience that's interested in that. But I guess with uh, a large time horizon yeah. here, maybe that can tip in the right direction. And, and to give um, your listeners context, like right now in the United States, uh, the or the United States and Canada, the average user on Facebook generates for, for Facebook $55 per quarter. So I always ask people like, would you be willing to spend, you know, 200, $250 a year on Facebook? And and it's interesting, most people claim they would not, but Facebook has run experiments where they, they bribe people not to use Facebook. Mm-hmm. And people actually value Facebook a lot more than like, $20 a month. Um, it's, it's fascinating to see that kind of cognitive dissonance. And when you say Facebook, are you including Instagram, WhatsApp yeah. in that? Yeah. yeah. Um, but what's interesting is that's $55 per user in the United States and Canada. It's only $14.50 in Europe. It's $4.50 in Asia and it's $2.50 in the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of these interesting things around, um, you know, I think it. I think it'll be super interesting to see how things play out as we see the demographic changes in the United States, because if more and more young people leave Facebook, you know, as those things change, the place that Facebook makes its money from is the United States, mm-hmm. and so they'll be left with these users that are locked in because you know they, it is the internet in their countries, but Facebook doesn't generate very much revenue from them. Netflix, totally happy to pay for Netflix. Yeah. I actually like that the algorithm is, yeah. you know, paying attention to what I like. So it serves me up interesting things that I might be interested mm-hmm. in and it's effective and it doesn't feel predatory or mm-hmm. pernicious because it's not based on an ad model that's trying to get me to, I mean, obviously engagement is important to them. They want you on their platform as signals. much as yeah. possible. So yeah. that's not great, but- They do, but they don't, right? So like they- Once want, you've subscribed, they, yeah. They, but they, the more you watch, then maybe the more you share it with other people yeah. and that that allows them to onboard yeah. more subscribers. I don't know. They, they want um, you to watch enough Netflix that you want to subscribe again next month, but no more than that. Because every minute more you watch, they have to pay for the computers, they have to pay for the bandwidth. You know, and 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 you know, think about it like. But there was that thing about like, oh, well, how do we get people to not sleep? Like the whole thing about like, oh, how do we the, maximize the engagement? Yeah. yeah. Well, the nighttime is the big problem here. Like, yeah. how do we get into that? You know. <laughs> so. The the line uh, the line is something like um, the the thing that he's competing against is sleep. Right. That's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. yeah. More concisely said. Yeah. Um, so one more thing to just keep in mind from the business model perspective, or like, where do the incentives lie? Um, there's a big push from investors away from subscription-based models to advertising models because the ceiling of value of your company is much higher with an advertising-based model because over time you can get higher and higher value advertisers. You can get better and better at targeting the ads as you accumulate more and more data. And that becomes the real value. It's the the future value of your company because there's a finite amount more, like Netflix always faces this, like people don't wanna pay for the subscription to go up. You know, they're like, $14 was okay, but $16, Mm. you know. (laughs) 
Um, all right, well, let's go back to you as a whistleblower mm-hmm. walking towards this you know, Rubicon moment where mm. you decide you're gonna share what's happening. So yeah. you're becoming progressively disillusioned. Um, was there a certain inflection mm. point where you decided I, I just can't, I, I have to go public with mm. what I'm discovering here. So it's interesting. I, I um, you know, like the saying, um, bankruptcy happens slowly over time and then very suddenly. Mm-hmm. So I lived with my parents during COVID. And um, one of the things that I'm super, super grateful about is because I lived with them, as I saw things unfolding that um, over that period of time, you know, I could go sit at dinner and be like, I saw this thing today. It feels really weird. You know, like I, I, I said this, and they like they gaslit me. You know, is it is it me or is it is it them? And and part of what I was really um, I'm really grateful for in retrospect is most most whistleblowers don't get that level of support. You know, they hold secrets alone, and it eats away at them. And they go to work each day, and they if they try to raise their issues, you know, people tell them things that make them question their own reality. And I was able over that period of time um, to like become more and more confident that what I was seeing was real. And that meant that when we reached December of 2020, so this is about a month after the US 2020 election, um, when Facebook dissolved the team I was on, so they dissolved a team called Civic Integrity, mm-hmm. it meant that um, I, had already, I had already gone through my period of agonizing. And I saw that it was time that, 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 that Facebook could not heal itself. To give you a little bit of context, um, so one of the classes I took at, at Harvard Business School is called Change Management, which sounds like a like a like a cliche business school class. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, you want to be a consultant when you grow up. Um, but change management as a field is re- a really interesting academic field because think about how hard it is for an individual to change a behavior, like a habit. Once you put a group of people together, because they all have conflicting, they have um, a vested interest in the status quo it becomes even harder to shift, say, a company. And there's a, a playbook of maybe four or five things you have to do, like that are not optional mm-hmm. if you want to change an organization. And one of them is you have to appoint a vanguard. You have to say, this group of people is the future. They're going that way. Um, we have to join, like you either join them or you get out of their way because the leadership's gonna guard them. And for four years, Facebook did that, right? So they got in a huge amount of hot water after the 2016 election because there were things where um, it's not it's not like Russian misinformation where they are asleep at the wheel. It's like um, there were these misinformation entrepreneurs out of Macedonia that had far bigger impact than the Russians because they were just kind of running wild monetizing on Facebook. Um, you know, Facebook spent four years building out civic integrity to be that vanguard. And right after the 2020 election, they dissolved the team. And what is your sense of why they made that choice? I think part of it was that, um, you know, they made good investment decisions over a long period of time. Like it was the only part of facebook.com that was growing was the civic integrity team. But the problem was, you know, as the team grew, I think they just accumulated more and more liabilities for the company because they, it went from having an amorphous problem to having a concrete problem. You know, every time a researcher did a project, now there was a record that Facebook knew these, mm-hmm. there were problems here and they weren't willing, like you have to remember, Facebook can't change the circumstances of their external constraints unilaterally. 
right? Like Facebook can't come out and say, hey, all software, um, all social platforms need to be transparent in the following ways so that we can do the right thing. Or at least they didn't think they could do that. Um, and, and so as they accumulated more and more of this documentation, it, I think it was just creating conflict for the company because they weren't willing to actually go and address those problems. Right, so they're they're getting a sense of just how broad and complex the yeah. problem is. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of documents piling up yeah. accounting for that. Uh, and without solutions, maybe better to just go la, 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 yeah. la, I don't, I don't, you know, it's better to not see. Well, it's not a question of there weren't solutions. Like over and over again, solutions were being proposed, but each of those solutions, you know, would hurt profitability by 0.1%. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you stack together the 30 most important things, 50 most important things, you know, Facebook might be 5% less profitable, but they also have like 35% profit margins. So it's this question of, where does that trade-off of cost come from? Right, Right. so if you go from 35 to 33, is that really a problem if we're actually addressing these social issues? Yeah, if you could could save the lives of 100,000 people in some country where Facebook is the internet, is that worth 0.1% of profit, 0.2% of profit? And and part of what you reveal uh, in disclosing the documentation Mm -hmm. that, that that you collected was that, um, Zuckerberg himself refused to mm-hmm. address these major problems despite a lot of well-documented pleas from employees. One of the, the, um, the stories I tell in there is, is to kind of um, benchmark how Mark views himself within the company, or at least how he portrays how he views himself, which is um, in the spring of 2019, uh, the president of India began making a lot of comments about Muslims that are considered red flags for ethnic violence. You know, he was comparing them to um, rodents, other kinds of vermin, which is like a classic kind of step on the dehumanization uh, kind of ladder. Mm-hmm. And uh, people started, and so people started having conversations about, you know, what should, if, if he started calling for violence against Muslims, you know, what should Facebook's policy be around that kind of violence incitement? Um, and uh, a task force of, you know, 30 people with, you know, deep expertise in these issues from all over the company, you know, from every single uh, part, slice of the company that would be affected, you know, from communications to the ads team, to the social cohesion team, which is like the genocide team, you know, all over, um, got together and did a task force for months to figure out what should Facebook's approach be to this? Should it happen? And and Mark came in, looked at the work of this group of 30 people and said, I can write a better policy and wrote one over the weekend. And when they announced it on Monday or Tuesday, um, the policy was, we will not touch the speech from politicians. And the problem was he had never consulted the advertising team or the misinformation team and so he didn't know that Facebook didn't know who the politicians were in the world, mm. right? So it was it was a it was a <laughs> a wrongheaded decision and ill informed at the time, and he didn't yeah. consult the teams that actually knew what were going on, which speaks to a larger issue yeah. around control and authority within yeah, Facebook. Totally. Like Mark, great question. Mark sits on what like fifty four percent of the voting stock or something that. like that. So, Is so it? Facebook buys back a huge amount of shares every quarter. And uh, it was like 53-ish when I came out. And I, at least the last time I checked, it was up to 55. Up to 55 so like every right. every you know quarter goes up a little bit. Right, and so it's, and it's structured such that there's all these different um, 
classes of stock, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but he's always uh, sort of notching up his voting rights shares so that he can exert yeah. basically, you know, authoritarian control. control. Yeah, unilateral control over the company, uh, which is problematic, right? <laughs> um, yeah, the- uh, so I'm the, the CEO, bitch. Yeah, that, know, that was right? his business card. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he's the chairman of the board, which means that he is also his own boss because he's the CEO. Um, uh, at Microsoft, you know, one of the inflection moments when Microsoft started being a little bit more of a pro-social actor was when uh, Bill Gates stopped being allowed to be both the chairman of the board and the CEO. And so these questions around, you know, um, uh, one of the things I learned in business school was this idea that that we think of corporations as these mono, like bohemoths. You know, they 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 have they're eternal. They've never changed. Uh, they have all this power. But the reality is like, even what we conceptualize as a corporation has changed over time. And there are checks and balances on those corporations, even if they don't necessarily take into consideration enough social costs. In the case of Facebook, all those checks and balances are gone, right? Because he controls uh, the majority of voting shares, it doesn't matter that over and over again, uh, you know, 80% of all the non-management votes say things like, um, you know, we need to look at the costs of Facebook. You know, we need to do a security audit. You know, we we should have only one class of votes because like, you know, you mm-hmm. shouldn't be allowed to demand to be CEO forever. It doesn't matter because he has that, you know, um, outsized influence of the company. And what is the composition of the board? Does he have <sighs> objective feedback? Is there anyone who's no, in really. his ear who's yeah. pushing back on what it is that he wants to do? Not, not really. Like it, it uh, if you, you really aren't anywhere near Mark, if you're critical. Um, so this is yet another in a string mm-hmm. of events and incidents that tiptoe you towards the yeah. edge of the cliff so, here. So when, when I, so when they announced they were gonna dissolve civic integrity, that was the moment where I, I was like, oh, they've given up on the playbook. You know, very clearly someone had come in and guided them and said, hey, if you want to change the course of Facebook, this is how you do it. When they, when they told us, you know, your team is so valuable, we're gonna in- integrate it into other parts of the company. Um, that was the moment for me where I was like, Facebook can only save itself if it gets help. Like it's not gonna be able to do mm-hmm. this alone. And so that was the moment where I knew that I was gonna have to figure out how to do something. And the dissolution, I have to believe on some level, because it came in the aftermath of the election, it feels like, well, the heat's kind of off because we're now on the other side of the election. Yeah, there wasn't, so there wasn't blood on the, the pressure streets. wasn't as yeah. intense as it was leading up to the election. I think what's so interesting about it is, you know, so the the fear at Facebook was genuinely that there was gonna be violence in the United States in the run to the election. And I think Facebook kind of felt like, oh good, we dodged the bullet. Like that the situation was resolved. There's, there's no future danger. But that meant that when the buildup to January 6th happened, there was now no longer like a single person whose responsibility was to raise their hand and say, hey, you know, maybe we should turn back on the safety systems that were on for the election. So what's your sense of Facebook's culpability in Mm. the January 6th events? So when you look at how the movement that culminated in the riots at the Capitol, um, you know, it's it's very interesting how those that those social movements grew, because it wasn't like um, a broad organic swell. It was a very very small number of people 
inviting hundreds or thousands of people to these groups that they didn't know, right? There were people who were very actively understanding what the weak points were in Facebook and then going out there and spam friending hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people or making lots of twin accounts. They could do it over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there's real questions around, you know, um, even even in, I'll give you an example of a safety feature that that might have changed how some people made decisions. When you sit in interviews with the people who got arrested at the Capitol, they say things like, it, I thought it was real, right? When I looked at my Facebook feed, all I saw was that there was a coup and that I, I, a patriot needed to come save the country. Part of why that was happening was if you have a post and every time there's a comment on it, it goes to the top of the feed, very rapidly, you can have a feed that gets completely swarmed with the, this, mm -hmm. this kind of mass panic. And one of the things that was on on January, before the election in 2020 was, if you had a Facebook group that had too many calls for violence, they would do things like say, hey, you need to appoint your own moderators, which sounds like, well, what's that gonna do? Like, aren't they just gonna approve all their own posts? It turns out getting people to care about a group enough that they are willing to volunteer to do tedious work like that, you automatically kind of rate limit that group. Mm -hmm. Or they said things like, if there's too many calls for violence, we'll turn off commenting, right? Now that means those posts don't go up to your the top of your feed a hundred times. Um, and so there's things where, you know, the, 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 the heat could have been turned down on Facebook for the, you know, six weeks, mm -hmm. eight weeks before mm -hmm. January 6th. So you, you make this decision that you're gonna start collecting documents and you, you kind of tap into this uh, history, this background you have in, in debate and how you formulate arguments and that informs how you start to collect information, right? And, and so it, we all have this yeah. vision of, you know, Edward Snowden and thumb drives and how do you sneak yeah. the stuff out? But you were basically, taking photographs mm -hmm. of documents on a laptop and then organizing them on a, on a um, gapped laptop. Is that how it went down? So the, the, I think one way to think about it is like, when Snowden did what he did, because he was um, an engineer who worked on an archiving system, he had a lot more awareness of what the security protocols were. And in my case, I didn't know how vigilant they were being. And so like I had to be careful in terms of saying, you know, what's the worst case scenario? Like if they were really surveilling me, you know, what would what would look like I was doing nothing? And taking pictures of your screen, like one of the things that's it is is um interesting about it from like a um a threat modeling perspective is there's no way for a company to know you're doing that um other than maybe like the cadence at which you you scroll. And so I was being um, as cautious as I could be because I, I, I knew that there would only be one chance to do this, that, that you know, whatever I got out would be the thing that was the, the record for mm -hmm. history because they would lock it down afterwards. But you came out with how many, do like 20,000 documents? 22,000 pages. 22,000 like pages. So that's 22,000 camera snaps? Yes, yeah. So that must've taken quite a bit of time. Or you get very efficient. Um, it's it's interesting. A huge fraction of everything that was captured was captured in the last month I was at Facebook. Um, so it seems like how is that possible? But it's one of these things where I did a lot of like very very long days for a number mm -hmm. of weeks. You make this decision. Well, you 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 get in touch with this writer for the Wall Street Journal, 
and that kind or of he in, reached out to he me. He reached out to you, and that to, yeah. initiates kind of the momentum behind this. Um, mm-hmm. And ultimately, you know, you decide to trust him, and he becomes your sort of co-collaborator in all of this. And you make the decision that the government entity with whom you're gonna share all of this was the SEC, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. Like, I mm-hmm. think most people would think, why didn't you go to the DOJ? Um, so in the United States, there's only two organizations that have whistleblower protections. So one is the SEC and one is the FTC. Um, uh, the DOJ doesn't have by default whistleblower protections. And so usually the way you do is you go to the SEC, you get whistleblower protections, and then they work with say the FBI or the DOJ. Hmm. You also have the right to give information to Congress that you believe is essential for Congress to fulfill like their constitutional um, role in oversight. And so that that, that was the strategy um, for my lawyers. And you're somebody who, despite doing all of this, you weren't looking to be in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. Like you're a reluctant whistleblower on some level. That's so many documents. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so you really didn't, own. you wanted to be anonymous. Like the, yeah. the whole kind of public facing aspect of this, I wouldn't say it's an afterthought, but it wasn't your first choice. You had to be yeah. cajoled into that yeah, role. Yeah, I think the thing that I had not really thought about, like I, I was enough in the zone of, you know, I, t- I talk about, part of why I did what I did was, I felt like Facebook took my future from me. Like once I knew the magnitude of the problem, you know, I had this fear that I would, you know, 20 years in the future, see a catastrophe in an African country or in Southeast Asia or five years from now and say like, I didn't do anything. Like I could have done something and I didn't do something. And I, I, I feared that I would lay in bed and just feel guilty about it. Um, and so, I had not really thought about what was gonna happen next after I gave the information to the government, right? Like I, I it wasn't really my, like my horizon of crisis, if you will, mm-hmm. was like not that far into the future. And after I left Facebook um, and like we got closer to the actual publication date, you know, it became this thing of uh, having to confront the idea that Facebook knew who did it, right? They could look at the data, mm-hmm. they could figure out. And, um, you know, I think anyone, if you go and look at your life, there's a version of you that you could spin facts in certain ways and make you look very unsympathetic. Um, and my lawyers were, were just very clear. They were like, you know, even not coming forward, you can actually endanger people, right? So like in the case of the Ukrainian whistleblower, which was also represented by my, whistle, by my whistleblower lawyer, um, some of the people the media was suggesting it might be weren't the person. And right, people, you're endangering other people yeah. as, a, as a result of that. And also it's easier to cast doubt um, and aspersions yes, on, yeah. on an Somebody's anonymous you know, face. Yeah. It's more difficult if you're out in front yeah. of it and the choice to go on 60 Minutes and, and you know, reveal yeah. your identity, yeah. I think was the right choice. It had to be terrifying It was terrifying, though. yeah. So in the background, the Wall Street Journal I'll, I'll give you, is compiling. I'll give you, I'll give you yeah, context. Go ahead. Like, yeah, yeah. total number of times in my life, I've had hairspray. Like, I had had hairspray like in my hair prior to going on sixty minutes. Maybe two. <laughs> maybe you said you had like Texas hair. Yeah, and I like imagine you're sitting there and you're someone who like, like my mother's a scientist, so like I I only would get to see her with any makeup on like maybe once a year for mm-hmm. like a Christmas dinner kind of thing. And a priest. Um, and she became a priest yeah. uh, in her fifties. Yeah. Um, my my. Grandmother became a lawyer in her fifties. My mother became a wow. priest in her fifties. 
And so uh, I, I want to be, I've, I've joked about becoming um, a psychiatric nurse practitioner in my fifties. Uh-huh. Like the <laughs> there's a pivot right? up there yeah. at some point at some for point, you, I guess. Right? You know, help people deal with all the trauma that we've accumulated from social media. But um, like, imagine, you know, like I've, I've never, I've almost never worn makeup. Like maybe I've worn makeup 10, 15 times before in my life. I've had hairspray in my hair maybe two times in my life. And I'm sitting in this makeup chair and they are like doing stuff to my hair. And it's just like, uh, like I talk about this moment in the book where, where I was almost grateful that there were so many people on the set because it made me feel like I had no option but to continue forward, mm-hmm. right? That I was like um, so overwhelmed in that moment. I was like, well, I guess I, I, ha- I, I, I don't wanna send all these people home if I don't like, if I chicken out like right, right now. In, in reflecting back upon yeah. that moment, and seeing those Wall Street mm-hmm. Journal articles and, and watching the 60 Minutes interview, part of me was like, yeah, like <laughs> it's not like, like this was, it's yeah. shocking that mm-hmm. an insider came out and said it, but yeah. what you were actually revealing wasn't all mm-hmm. that surprising to me, but it seemed yeah. like it, it was to a lot of people. And the, the point that got the most attention was the impact of Instagram on teenage girls, Mm -hmm. which was only one of kind of many revelations Mm -hmm. and perhaps maybe not even in the top three of Hmm. the most cataclysmic things that you were sharing. I think this question of, you know, when I say to you, an algorithm could incite violence, right? Or or, um, one of the key revelations was Facebook made a change to the algorithm in 2018 where I, I, they went from just maximizing how long you were on the site to trying to maximize how much you would react because your actions incentivized other people to create content. But within six months of that, you had political parties on the right and the left across Europe saying, you know, we're being forced to run more extreme content now. Like stuff we know our constituents don't like because it's what gets distributed by the algorithm, right? Like think about how abstract that kind of revelation is. Or like saying, when you apply a system like that to a country in Africa where they don't have any um, safety systems written in their language, what happens? You know, most people have trouble emotionally connecting to something that is that that foreign. Mm-hmm. Um, but most people have at least one child in their life who is, you know, either a tween or a teenager, and they they many of them have seen kids suffer. And so I think part of why the revelations around teen mental health were so resonant is people are really seeing the magnitude of the harm today. And I, I think, you know, you're saying before, like people had brought this up before. Um, when you have, pro, it was kind of like a tobacco moment that prior to when the tobacco whistleblower came out, you know, scientists had known for a couple decades, like cigarettes cause cancer. The thing they didn't know was that the the tobacco companies knew that. Knew that, had documentation to that effect, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the big differentiator there. Um, What was your expectation going into that whole experience and how did that match up to what actually transpired in the aftermath? Um, It went way better than I ever could have imagined. Right, like I, I came into it and um, they, I think part of because they had dealt with, you know, whistleblowers like the Ukrainian whistleblower, you know, that that person had death threats. Even mm-hmm. the lawyers involved had death threats. Um, uh, you know, they had people showing up at their homes and screaming at them. 
Um, we didn't know how the internet, how like the public would respond to the information I brought forward because there was like a real chance that, you know, the conspiracy theories that spread about me were relatively innocuous. You know, it was things like, she's a crisis actor. Like there's no way she could right. be that good. Um, uh, Which is a big part of what I, I yeah. would imagine was a motivation in front loading your book with like, actually like here's all this stuff that I did. Like yeah. I am good, like I am smart. Uh, well, like, or, to, or, or, or like I had a lot of people help me, right? Like, yeah. like my debate coach was good enough that he became the You were like a top 25 yeah. in the country debater, yeah. math wizard. You were like, you're like reading at like a college level no, in I, kindergarten I, I had, or something I a, like that. College, I had a, uh, <laughs> my, my parents are both professors and I had uh -huh. a college level vocabulary. Oh, vocabulary, yeah. right. Yeah. So I was a little so, obnoxious. Like, yeah, you're very you know, precocious. Yeah. Um, you know, intelligent child. Uh, yeah. So, you know, all of that kind of gets yeah. vetted out in the book, but yeah, crisis actor, yeah. interesting. But, but think about it, like like that is way less bad than like, you know, she's like part of a network of pedophiles or something, mm -hmm. right? Like, like it could right. have, it could have gone real weird. And- and Did you get death threats? I never got death threats. Like I don't, I don't even get harassed. Like, like that's part of what I've been totally blindsided interesting. by. Is because like most women who speak publicly um, get get harassed pretty seriously. Mm -hmm. And um, I have like one or two people who message me occasionally on Instagram and tell me like that dress was really cute. But compared to like what happens to most women on the internet, like that's, that's like a walk in the park. What do people not understand or appreciate hmm. about the experience of, of being Ooh, a whistleblower? That is a great question. Um, so one of the thing, you know, I mentioned before my gratitude that I lived with my parents um, people often ask me things like, if I could give one piece of advice to whistleblowers, like what would that be? And um, the thing I always say is you need to find at least one person in your life that you really, really trust that you can be fully honest with because carrying a secret alone, it, it destroys people. And I realized, you know, I got really lucky that my whistleblowing experience was much less traumatic than most people's whistleblowing experience. And part of that was that I, I didn't go on the journey alone or I was in Puerto Rico when I came out. And so it meant, you know, there was, it was very difficult for someone to like get in a van and right. drive 12 hours and scream at me. Right, I'm sure that was helpful. Yeah. But you had a lot of yeah. help, mm -hmm. the Wall Street Journal, mm -hmm. you had um, this whistleblower law firm, yep. you know, you had a team of people who were counseling you, you had people preparing you for 60 minutes, you had people preparing you to, for, you know, so, appear before the Senate and you're yeah. a debater, like yeah. this is your thing. So it's interesting, um, I'm a product manager. So like product managers don't code. Like we are not, like we can code, like I can code, like on, on hobby things, I code. Um, but you know, when the product moves forward, it's not because I, I did it directly, it's because I helped Marshall help in that direction. Or like I helped other people unleash their ability to make impact. And I think part of it was that like most whistleblowers don't have MBAs. Like most whistleblowers are not product managers. And um, you know, I have never needed to be the star, right? Like I don't believe that I uniquely am the one who's gonna save things. And so it makes it a lot easier to say, I, I need help. Mm -hmm. And and it's interesting, um, I had this experience, uh, speaking of the debate, um, I, so if you were a professional dancer, you take like a lot of dance classes where you like show up and they teach you some moves and like that's the dance class for the day. And the reason you do that is that when you audition for a job, they're gonna come out and they're gonna teach you some moves and they're gonna see how fast you learn them. 
because that's gonna be a measure of like, how easy is it gonna be to work with you? Um, when we did the prep for the Senate, um, we spent two days. So imagine there's like 15 people in a room or on like Zoom and you spend two days them throwing questions at you and you try to answer them and they say, that's a horrible answer. Like do it this way because it's cleaner. Like that's like the content's good, but like mm -hmm. it's not, you know, you're, you're not communicating cleanly enough. And I talked to one of the people who was in that room, um, I don't know, a year later. And he's like, you know, Francis, when we left at the end of the second day, we were all convinced this was gonna be a disaster. Mm. Um, but you like incorporated the feedback that you got. And so when you actually showed up at the Senate, you know, it, you'd done enough dance classes through doing debate and having your coaches yell at you and say like, that's a bad answer that you knew how to like take the feedback. Yeah, in. but you'd done enough reps yeah. growing yeah, up yeah. That, that you had a comfort level yeah. with that type of dynamic. Um, when you were before the Senate and also yeah. sitting with Scott Pelley, did, mm -hmm. did in either of those cases, was a, a question thrown at you that caught you off guard mm -hmm. or were you fully prepped and like had a answer for everything that was asked you? I'm sure there was a bunch of stuff that I didn't expect. There, like I remember there were moments at the Senate, <laughs> uh, there was a moment at the Senate where one of the senators asked me about like quantitative measures on Instagram. Like, you know, did I believe we needed to take quantitative? So this is like how many likes a post has. Mm -hmm. He's like, do you believe we need to take quantitative measures off of Instagram? And I was like, well, you know, it sounds obvious, but the, we actually have documents in the disclosures saying Facebook tried this. As long as you leave comments on there, kids can still tell who's more popular than whom. Like it doesn't really do anything. And um, the the senator clearly had, clearly had not been given a long, large enough bench of questions because uh -huh. he just asked. He didn't me, have a follow up he, to he that. A, he just asked me a second time. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's probably the moment that I was like most surprised. It's still like, a better question than you know how does Facebook make, make money? money. <laughs> <laughs> well, the moments that will live in infamy, right? Or the internet is a series of tubes. Yeah, yeah. right. That's a good one. Um, the difference between. Uh, uh, when Mark Zuckerberg, you know, appeared before, uh, which committee was it? The Senate. <laughs> the Senate. Yeah, yeah. And then when you appeared, the sophistication of the questions okay. and the kind of knowledge base uh, was pretty evident. Like they're they're playing catch up, obviously, in the regulatory landscape and the legislative landscape is just miles behind what's actually happening because the pace at which mm -hmm. tech is iterating upon itself, it's impossible for bureaucratic systems to mm. keep pace mm -hmm. and even understand what's happening. And I think that makes it all the more important and prescient um, when someone like yourself comes along who not only understands the technology deeply, but also has mm. this, um, skill set in debate and communication, mm -hmm. and you're mm -hmm. able to translate these things in a meaningful way that is impactful. Can, can I challenge you on something you just sure. said? Though you, you said like it's impossible for them to keep up at the same pace, and and one of the things that that like um, like I'm running a nonprofit right now, and one of the notions we're actively challenging is the idea of you know if we if we stopped accepting the idea that they can't keep up with pace, how would we fix that? And I think the question is like, we definitely are seeing an acceleration in technology. And if we continue trying to execute regulatory systems at the same way we did it before, it's not gonna be fast enough, right? Technology is mm -hmm. running away too fast. But you could say things like, we've unlocked organizational technologies through things like wikis, other ways of bringing large number of people together and synthesizing their attention over the last 20 years. What if we could just recruit exponentially more people to pay attention 
and synthesize that knowledge so that we could help the regulators stay at pace. Right, and that's, so your nonprofit, Beyond the Screen, mm -hmm. part of the premise there is, is onboarding as many people as possible, particularly young people mm -hmm. with education and like kind of running, uh, you know, walled off social media experiments so that they're fluent mm -hmm. in what's happening. Um, so it's a ground up sort of thing, a populist movement of sorts. But how does that translate into regulatory and, and legislative sure. change? Because you are pushing up yeah. against these gigantic systems that move glacially, yeah. if well, at all. Well, we have we have three main projects right now, and and two of them are really aimed at uh, what I would call the ecosystem of accountability. So it's like regulators, it's litigators, it's investors, it's concerned citizens. And the second one is this question of how do you have like millions more people feel fluent in how the, the choices that are being, being made behind the scenes of these systems. Mm -hmm. And that's like for mass democracy. So we have one that's targeting, one might say the elites and one saying, hey, how do we do mass scale culture change? In the case of the one that's targeting more the expert class, um, you know, we're working on building out a wiki right now where we say, hey, let's actually document the harms kind of like how Jonathan Haidt has done it for mm -hmm. kids' mental health. Mm -hmm. so, so one of the really transformative things that happened in the last you know, five years was this psychologist at NYU said, hey, you know, we keep throwing around the same like one-liners about social media. Like there's this um, famous line from a paper that said, um, social media has the same impact on kids' mental health as eating potatoes. So like every time he would try to bring up like, you know, hey, something's happening with the kids. People would be like, social media has the same impact mm. as eating potatoes. And he was like, I got, I have, I have to like un unpack this paper. And, it, and the reality is it's very poorly designed. Like it's, it, there's just the statistical analysis used is, is ridiculous. But he said, hey, let's start organizing collectively. You know, let's come together and do a collaborative literature review of everything we know about kids' mental health. And then say, where are the weak spots in this literature? So imagine you took a, up an approach like that that has been so helpful in crystallizing and, and catalyzing the conversation on kids' mental health. What if we expanded it across the problem set for social media? Because now you, it's not just like a, a few regulators like sitting and trying to understand things. It's, it's we can bring thousands of people to the fold and say, hey, let's synthesize together. Mm -hmm. And then uh, one of the things that we think we're, can be potentially extremely helpful is we're, we're trying to... Make the conversation about how to move forward uh, a little more productive by separating the concept of we have levers that might prevent or mitigate harm. And then we have many, many, many strategies for pulling each lever. And the example I usually use is on kids' issues. So it doesn't matter what the problems with kids, a common lever across those problems is let's keep under 13 year olds off these products. Mm -hmm. Like allegedly mm -hmm. that's what it's supposed to be already. Let's actually do it. If you talk to the people who understand kids' social issues, they usually are not technologists. And so they'll say things like, we should check IDs. You know, every social media right. account should have a passport or a driver's license associated with it. And that might work in China, but it would not work here. And we could have a conversation on that, but just trust me. Um, and there's like all kinds of implications for things like civil liberties. But if you had instead said, hey, I have a lever, I need to keep kids under 13 off. And so you said to a technologist, how could I pull that lever? They'd be like, here's 10 or 15 different ways you can find an under 13 year old. Mm -hmm. You know, it's everything from kids say, I'm a fourth grader at Jones Elementary to kids report each other to punish each other, um, like on the playground. It's like, you piss me off and I report your Instagram account. Oh, wow. 
Um, I know I didn't. That opens up. That. That's a sticky wicket. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but the thing is, once you get like a thousand or ten thousand examples, you can find all the other kits. You don't have to check IDs. And so our hope is right now uh, there is no regulator in the world that can sit and look at a menu of what is possible. We can't have community discussions saying what should the floor be. Like we're not saying do it all. Like we're saying there's some, something down here where we're saying this is what's being done today. Mm-hmm. This is what should be the floor and this is what's possible. Right. And, and so we need to think about organizationally, how do we move faster and faster? It reminds me of something uh, Senator Cory Booker said when he was on the show, which was that um, change doesn't come from Washington, it comes to Washington, yeah, which totally. to your point is yeah. all about establishing a groundswell of awareness and education that puts pressure on legislators and, and regulators. I talk in the book about the idea that we like to think laws or where change comes from. They're like laws are so clean. It's like, oh, the law got signed, change happened. But in reality, like laws don't happen until we come up with norms. We say, hey, that's actually wrong. Like we believe that's wrong. And we come up with standards for what it means to transgress that norm. Mm-hmm. And, and that process is, is slower, right? And, and uh, I think there are ways that we can catalyze that conversation and it should be a conversation. You know, it should be a public argument about what, what do we want our social media to do? Or mm-hmm. what does social media owe us? Mm-hmm. Um, because so much is possible. Yeah, well, there's so many threads to pull on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that um, on the one hand, there's a call to action or a need that you identify in the book and have spoken about many cool. times to interject the humanities and philosophy into the tech space. Because when you think of these tech behemoths mm-hmm. and your boots on the ground and have been at you know, employed by many of these places, you're looking at very smart, intelligent math wizards like yourself and data scientists and coders, et cetera, who are suddenly making decisions at extraordinary scale that are impacting Mm. society, but are not fluent in certain, you know, kind of uh, ideas around like ethics, for example, right? And so, young people making big decisions, doing the best that they can, yeah. well-intentioned, um, but perhaps you know divisions and, and teams within these entities not staffed with the appropriate people to make those mm. decisions. Unquestionably, let's say you were a 19 year old and you knew you wanted to work in a big tech firm. And I'd say of people who get CS degrees, a pretty large fraction of them have aspirations of something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you already have a much larger set of requirements usually than most other majors. So you have less flexibility off the bat to take things that are outside of mm-hmm. just your CS education. But there's also the reality that every class you take that is not a CS class makes you less likely to be able to pass the interviews to get in at Google because someone else will have doubled right. down. And so we have this very, um, part of why I wrote the book is I want people to understand when I talk about the incentives are not aligned with the common good, it's not just at the point of Facebook writing their quarterly earnings statement, it's like every step along the way because we're getting more and more godlike powers, but the people who have the skills to wield them or choose what problems to solve have very, very little context on what the implications of that technology right. could be. Um, you said recently, you told the Sunday Times that tens of millions of people will die if social media isn't overhauled. So what do you, that's a, I mean, that's obviously a headline a grabbing yeah. quote. What do you mean by that? 
So when I joined Facebook, um, and I want to fully admit I'm in the same pool as lots and lots of other technologists that went down this road. When I joined Facebook, I had not really thought about the implications of Facebook being the internet for some of the most vulnerable places in the world, right? So Facebook, you know, surveyed the scene in the late uh, late 2000s, early teens and said, hey, we came to prominence because we killed MySpace. You know, we we came to prominence because we killed Friendster. You know, these were social networks for those of your listeners that are too young to remember Mm -hmm. the glory days of the early 2000s. You know, these were the social networks that people were on in 2003. You know, we came to prominence because we surprised those legacy networks. You know, we don't know what corner of the world the thing that will come from will surprise us. So we're gonna go into other countries and say, if you use Facebook, we'll pay for your data. If you use anything else on the open web, uh, you're gonna pay for it yourself. So de facto, that means, the translation to that is that for gigantic swaths of the developing world, Facebook is the internet. It is the, it is the primary interface, if not the only interface by which people are interacting with each other online, which creates in a tremendous amount of power. And with that power comes responsibility. It and should, a big yeah. part of your work has been kind of pulling the covers on the lack of responsibility or the gaps in, in you know, what should have, could have mm-hmm. been done. Unquestionably. And, and, and one of the things that I, I want to be clear is this book isn't actually just about Facebook. It is about opaque systems that are in similar positions because we're actually seeing now TikTok and, and notice TikTok came from the only corner of the world where Facebook couldn't play, mm-hmm. right? Like it came from China. Um, I, uh, I thought when I came out that we had five years before there would be violence caused in, uh, by, by TikTok because it, you know video takes more bandwidth, you need a nicer phone. And within a year after I came out, there was violence in Kenya around the elections that was fanned by TikTok. And if you look at the drivers, you know, they're actually related. So I, I talked to someone at TikTok and they said, when the violence was taking place, there were no moderators at TikTok that spoke Swahili. Mm. And, and that is the, the recurring theme, right? So for Facebook, they went into these vulnerable places in the world. They prevented an organic internet from forming. So an internet that was based in companies that were local, that spoke the local language, that understood local culture, that had a vested interest in the success of those countries. They came in and displaced that, made sure it didn't get to grow up. But then they had these systems where uh, because the algorithms give more distribution to more extreme content, you know, if you start a fight in a post, you're, you're gonna get much, much more distribution than someone who sure. does a calm response. Um, you know, Facebook has set up a system where unless you are actively kind of turning the knobs, or this is the same for TikTok, TikTok's even worse because they push things towards being hyper viral. Unless you have the people in there going in there and kind of blunting the sharpest edges, you can have systems that fan ethnic violence. And we've now seen that for, for Facebook twice, Myanmar and, and, Ethiopia, and Ethiopia, mm-hmm. and smaller incidences in places like Sri Lanka. When, when we talk about uh, the tools that are available currently uh, for purposes of staving off misinformation, hmm. disinformation, for uh, you know, combating uh, you know violence, et cetera, that is incited online. Um, what are those tools? We have mm. content moderators, mm. and we have the ability to toggle the algorithm. Is that mm. still the case? Like, what does that mm. landscape look like? I'd say we actually have a third one also, which is you can make intentional choices about how your products are designed. 
So like if we were to roll back in time to 2010, right? So in 2010, Facebook had a, had a feed. You know, you still, it looked quite similar to what it does today, but that feed was not algorithmic. It was chronological. Mm -hmm. And because of that, you couldn't have mega groups. Like you couldn't have a group that had 5 million people in it because to have a group with 5 million people, that group might make 5,000 pieces of content a day. You have to have an algorithm that will cherry pick out 10 things to show you, right? Um, you know, we can make choices around, do we want social media that's about our friends and family? Do we want a social media that prioritizes choices we make? So I'll, go, I'll give you an example. This doesn't even touch the algorithm or it does a little bit, but it's more like a product design choice. You know, Facebook has uh, done experiments where they say, hey, let's divide all the content on Facebook into two pools. One is content you consented to. So this is your fr you, the friends and family you picked, the pages you followed, the groups you actually joined. And one pool is content you did not consent to. So this is someone invited you to a group. Facebook started putting content from that group into your feed for 30 days. You wrote, that's misinformation on a, on a post and a comment. And they said, ooh, you like it. And mm -hmm. they made you a member of that group. Or your friend commented on something and now the post shows up in your feed. If you just say, hey, we're gonna give priority to content that you, you selected, that you consented to, over content you didn't uh, consent to, you get less misinformation, less violence, and less hate speech. Like your friends and family aren't the problem. Right, but you get less engagement you, you and, get, and you get lower yeah. you, you get lower revenue yeah. because you're not yeah. able to serve up as many ads. And so the incentive structure yeah. is is upside down. Yeah. And, and a big part of your work in the book mm -hmm. is talking about the importance of, of changing those incentives mm -hmm. uh, in, in partnership or in lockstep with the, the urgency around transparency. Mm -hmm. So right now we have laws that say, you know, if you're a private company, you're publicly traded, you have to report your profit and your loss. You know, how much money did you spend, your expenses to get that profit? You don't have to report the, con the consequences of your products, right? Uh, one of the major ways in which our economy is changing, and we have to talk about this because it's only getting more and more dramatic, is it used to be 50 years ago, 100 years ago, most of our economy was run by systems where you could buy the product and you could take it apart. You know, you could test it for, does it have lead in it or heavy metals? You could put sensors outside the factory and see what kind of pollution is being imposed on society. We are moving now onto opaque systems where the important choices, the important consequences happen behind a curtain. You know, they, they live on data centers. Um, Facebook has to report the profit and loss, but no one actually gets to see how Facebook is functioning. And I'll give you kind of an example to give a sense of, of why the world has changed so much. And I, I talk about this some in the book. You know, if I, I, I know this is gonna feel like a reach. You and I could sit down and spend three weeks and I could teach you enough coding that you could ask meaningful questions about Google. You know, like you could ask mm -hmm. questions about what does Google distribute? What, what, what seems to be like um, uh, what their preferences are, that kind of thing. Because we all see basically the same version of Google. If you wanted to do that same level of like accountability 101, we would have to recruit 20,000 people and convince them to install software on their computers or their phones to send us what they saw. You know, it's a much, right. much harder problem. Mm -hmm. And so the, the kinds of laws that I think really shift the playing field, you know, like, you know, you're saying change comes not like from Washington, it comes to Washington. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for things like cars, and I talk about this in the book, by the time we met our watershed moment in the mid 60s, so like 
the fatality rates on cars have been going down for years. In the 60s, they started going up again. You know, there were 100,000 automotive engineers who, who could confirm what unsafe at any speed was saying. Or there was uh, an insurance industry that didn't want to pay out claims. And so they would spend money on research so that uh, they could say, no, it was actually the automotive company's fault. Or there were lawyers who had been looking for victims and could give you representative data. You know, if we wanted to enable an ecosystem like that, that could go and begin challenging these opaque systems, we would need to pass laws that say, hey, we need a baseline level of transparency. Like you, you can't hide information on like how many kids are you know, binge watching YouTube at 2 a.m. You can't hide information on how many kids are getting overexposed to self-harm content. Because even just a little bit of transparency can be privacy protected data, mm -hmm. you know, aggregate data. Suddenly moms can organize. Suddenly parents can make different decisions about what products they let their kids use. You know, advertisers can say, I'm not willing to spend, uh, invest in your product. But we can't do any of those things without baseline data. In addition to being uh, called a crisis actor, the other, the other mm. criticisms that were levied yeah. at you were, there's a bunch of them, but one was mm -hmm. you weren't high enough up, mm -hmm. up. You oh, weren't, you were never in the room. You were, yeah. You're not in the C-suite. Yeah. You don't really know yeah. what was happening at the highest level. Mm -hmm. And you know, Mark, right after everything made, was made public, kind of came out and said, she's mischaracterizing mm -hmm. everything. Yeah. She doesn't really understand what's happening. I take this personally. Mm -hmm. It was sort of a, an emotional appeal. Yeah. So part of, um, I, I totally anticipated that that would be said about me. And so one of the things I did was I didn't just get the documents. I got all the comments on all the documents so that you could see Facebook employees talking about each of these documents in real time. So you could see that people didn't believe that these were crazy, that they thought these were true. And one of the things I really hope is gonna happen is um, Harvard is right now releasing the documents. Um, I hope oh, when, wow. like, so like there's, you know, if there's, you know, tens of researchers that have access right now, um, hopefully in the future, like the public will be able to access most of them. You know, the thing that um, is, is sad for me about how things rolled out, like we had to do it this way because we needed to protect people's privacy. You know, if you could see the names on the comments, or you could see the names on the documents, like who wrote what, I think the disclosures are 10 to 20% more scary. Because right now, when you read through them, you occasionally see things and you're like, that can't be right. Like, there's no way that could be true. And if you could see the thread of like, this person said this and this and then this, and they've been at Facebook for 10 years, mm. you would be like, oh, this is actually much more scary than I thought it was. Mm. What would be an example of that? Uh, I think just things around things like the the algorithms, like the idea that there are there are biases in what gets distributed, um, and that uh, you know these things don't have they don't have to operate this way, but they are operating this way in, in, mm -hmm. to a really extreme extent. And to have the comments yeah. in the documents also, um, or stuff about things like um, cartels operating on the platforms in Mexico, or the terrorism things, or or how Facebook's like censorship systems uh, take down counterterrorism content. Like there's just a bunch of stuff along those lines. Mm. And the comments validate the legitimacy yeah. of the documents. To have those comments on there makes one realize like, oh, this is, this is a real document and there were multiple people yeah. engaged in discussing the ramifications or, or of it. Or I'll give you another example. There are documents criticizing that they have brought multiple safety interventions and that say the policy team has intervened to protect the speech of certain political actors, right? Like that they, there, were, there were things brought forward that would have made things safer, would not have cherry picked 
Like they weren't picking ideas that were good or bad. It was just changing how the system was tuned. And that, you know, the policy team would intervene because it would um, uh, have implications for certain actors. Mm -hmm. What about the argument that you cherry picked Mm, documents? Great question. Um, One of the things that I did very intentionally as I documented things was I actually um, documented the order in which I captured documents. So you you can walk beside me as I wander through the documents and you can see that it's not like, you know, the random things here and there. It's like there, are, I was clearly searching and just doing arcs um, and pulling things as I found them. And so I just got whatever, whatever I found when I searched for, you know, teen depression or that kind mm-hmm. of thing. But I do agree that like, I didn't get a complete view. I only got, the, the stuff in the documents is just stuff that I had access to. Mm-hmm. And some of that access was privileged in that I worked on threat intelligence. Um, so I had access to a broader set of things. But you know, for a lot of the stuff on on like say teen mental health, like that was just was freely available to anyone in the company. Mm-hmm. One of the things that 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 comes across in mm-hmm. the book and when I listen to you speak is is that you're not attempting to vilify mm. Facebook or Mark Zuckerberg. Like you're you're it's quite the opposite, actually. Like you seem to have a lot of empathy and, and compassion for not just that organization, mm. but for the people that work there and the position that they're in. And I, I think that's interesting. I think it would be easy hmm. to just point fingers mm. and, and create villains. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is your your perspective on, mm. on Mark? Oh, you know, Mark is so interesting. So, so think about it. Like, you know, what were you like when you were 19 years old? I was a, I was a knucklehead. <sighs> I was a <laughs> drunken, out of control yeah, I, disaster. I, I was a disaster when I was 19. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of and a lot of 19 year olds are disasters. Like Marcus, Marcus had to be the CEO since he was 19, right? Like he's, he has been surrounded by people. Remember he's had control of all the votes since he was 19. So everyone around him, he gets to decide if they're around him because he's in control. And, and, you know, I became who I am today because I made lots of mistakes and I got lots of feedback and I had to live with consequences of my actions. And Marcus had very little of that feedback cycle. And I, I really worry about, you know, what, what life has he ended up in? Because I, you know, he's going on podcasts and saying things like, when I wake up in the morning, it feels, and I look at my phone, like I look at my email, it feels like I'm getting punched in the face. You know, like how, like is, if that's not a cry for help, like I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not really sure what it is. And, and it's one of these things where, um, you know, he's the last of the original big tech CEOs that's still in charge of his own company. And, and I think part of that is that he lives in an echo chamber. You know, he, he lives on a, 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 an estate in Hawaii half the year, the other half of the year he's at Facebook. Like he can't go out anywhere in the Bay Area without people grimacing at him. Mm. You know, like it's, it's not like, um, if I had crossed Twitter, the Elon Musk fanboys would have come for me. But like there are no Mark Zuckerberg fanboys. That feels like it's changing yeah. a little bit with this cage match thing. Yeah, which makes me I just think, just from my perspective, this yeah. Elon Mark yeah. like cage match. It's like are we really are living in idiocracy? Like oh. I don't care about this. Like what is happening? People uh. want to see it. It probably, and if it happens, I'm sure I'll watch so, it, so but like, I, I, it's very strange. My heart breaks watching this whole thing play out because 
Elon is trolling. Sure. Right? That Elon is being Elon. You gotta, and Mark is, and, is and Mark earnest. Is earnest. Yes. He's training. And the part that I I like breaks my heart is like he's leaning into this because he's like, oh, I'm gonna show I'm serious. Like I'm gonna show I'm a tough guy. And it's like he he's in a lose-lose situation. Like if he wins, it's gonna be like dweeb, like everyone, like people liked Elon more. You beat up the more popular guy. And if he loses, that's just gonna be like, oh, you're you're a nerdy you know, white belt in jujitsu, you know, it's, it, I, he, you have to remember if we rolled back in time to 2016, so this is right before the election, right? In April of 2016, Mark was in Africa getting parades thrown for him. You know, he was visiting Africa and people were saying, you are the savior of Africa. You brought internet to Africa. You changed the lives of all these people. And six months later, people are like, you're destroying democracy. Like imagine Facebook is your identity. Like everything you've done since you were 19 years old is this company. It is almost impossible for a rational human being to be like, oh, the thing that I've spent my life doing actually is hurting people. Mm. And so it feels it feels The desperate. psychic toll of that. Yeah. yeah. And and being in this gilded cage totally. and, and, and not, you know, having people in your life who can Give sort of feedback. check you. Yeah, is is a really interesting thing. And the fact that he is the last of these yeah. people where everybody else has sort of realized time for a new chapter or yeah. let's move on. He's holding on to it. Do you think that's because he needs to, you know, evolve it past this narrative so that he feels so. good about it again? I think like the metaverse stuff is Then you is would right think that, that he would invest in yeah. all of these things that you're talking about to yeah. rectify them. Well, he, he has invested, um, you know, more than we spent to go to the moon on the metaverse. Right. Right, like he clearly is like, oh, the thing, if I can pull off the metaverse thing, then that will be the thing that I'm known for. I won't be known for, you know. Well, early indications yeah. are that that was unwise. <laughs> um, but, you know, on a longer timeline, yeah, you, know. you know, that bet yeah. may pay off, I don't know. But those headlines got eclipsed by the, yeah. you know, the advent of AI, which yeah. I wanna put a pin in for a minute because sure. I wanna come back to that. But um, yeah, right. he, he, he shifted the narrative away, but, He's still spending this is his, billion this a year. is his Hail Mary. It's his Hail Mary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, and part of what I, my, again, my heart goes out to him on is like, you know, one of my favorite things about talking to journalists is journalists gossip like no one else, right? Like that's the kind of professional gossips in some ways. Uh-huh. And um, back when the metaverse stuff was really blooming, I had multiple journalists tell me, you know, Mark is going out there and saying, people are gonna spend all day in the metaverse. You know, they're gonna work in the metaverse. They're gonna hang out in the metaverse. Like this is gonna be like the next town square was because he spent all day in the metaverse. And if you think about it, like if you're a person and you can't go out in public without people grimacing at you or without eating a restaurant, without being afraid of people coming up and telling you they think you're a genocidal, like, you know, someone who's gonna hurt humanity like the metaverse might be really attractive. Mm-hmm. Cause like you can go out with whatever avatar you want or at a minimum, if people recognize you, they can't grimace at you, at least until the new headsets come out. Mm-hmm. That's a very compassionate uh, perspective. Well, hurt people him. hurt people. And yeah. he's just gonna keep causing damage until we like help him go on to greatness. Like he's gonna go do something else. And he is so young and he's so smart and he has so much resources. You know, I, I've, I've joked before that like, if I ever write another book, which I, I, I don't think is in the future because I'm the PTSD of writing one is too close. Um, you know, I wanna dedicate it to Mark that like, I am convinced 
you can accomplish greatness and I will not give up till you do, mm, you know? That's sort of, that's sweet. Yeah. Has he reached out to you? He's Have never you had any communication yeah. with him, even, even by proxy through nope. somebody else? Nope. I, they, they by pretend, anyone at Facebook? Nope, they pretend I don't exist. Uh-huh, interesting. But you've they said- won't, They won't comment on the book. They won't. Well, yeah. that's yeah. a, talk about a no-win yeah. situation for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have said that under certain circumstances, you would mm-hmm. go back and work at Facebook. Yeah, we, we can't give up on Facebook, right? Like I think the most important, the most important work I could do is if, if they actually wanted to fix it, is like work on like, how do we, how do we make sure it can function safely, you know, in the places where it is the internet. Mm-hmm. Because I think there are strategies where even if you, even if you didn't want to necessarily do it the way I would suggest doing it, which is like, let's go in there and add the friction, like add the intentionality around sharing, that kind of thing. Um, you know, even if you did want to keep a content moderation strategy, you know, beginning to work on decentralized content moderation. Like imagine if, and like um, there's a, a scholar named uh, Ethan Zuckerman at UMass Amherst, Amherst, who talks about the idea that right now we are subjects of a king on our social platforms. You know, we can follow the laws, we cannot follow the laws, we can go to another place, but we're, we're not citizens, you know, in, in a democracy, you know, it's not just that we have rights, we have responsibilities. You know, we do jury duty, we have other obligations to our communities. You know, you know, there's a way that we could be scaling up even the current ways of doing safety into these places, but we'd have to say, you have to do some of the labor too. The evolution beyond decentralizing content moderation would be decentralizing the social entire networks. social yeah. network. I mean, this is Jack Dorsey's whole thing, mm-hmm. right? Like in yep. his dreams, Twitter would be a decentralized system. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that you see mm. emerging in the I, near future? I think there's a really, new player. I think there's really interesting opportunities around things like creator-owned social networks. So, like you know, we talked about before the idea of these are advertising-supported platforms. If people don't create, they don't get. There's no ads to. You can't run ads against it. Um, I think a world where people who participate have the ability to influence how the system is governed is a thing that I think will very likely happen at some point in the future because mm-hmm. people value these spaces so much. And if people knew there could be a world where they would have a say in these spaces, I think that would be compelling for them. Well, we're in a bit of a chaos adolescence phase right yeah. now with the emergence of all of these smaller kind yeah. of Twitter analogs mm-hmm. and the emergence of the substackification of of journalism, and I feel like we're we're sort of fi- trying to find our feet in all of this, but yep. it's a little strange right now to not really know. Like, do I subscribe yeah. to this or this yeah. or how many subscriptions am I actually going <laughs> to am I actually going to be up for? And how is this all going to play out? Is there going to be a consolidation, mm. or is there going to be a clear winner that's mm. going to emerge from all of these? you know, nascent little networks that are popping up right now. One of now. the ones that I'm really excited by is called Post News. Mm-hmm. And like, if I, if we have, let's say we pass transparency laws tomorrow, like the one I would wanna work on is, is Post News. Why is that? Um, so one of the things I, I worked on at Facebook that I talk about is we did influence modeling. You know, we said, hey, like we can actually model human relationships and like how does influence percolate between people. And that's actually really important for detecting like a fake person versus a real person. Right, because um, it's very hard to fake the constellation of relationships that real humans exist within. Um, uh, Post News is, is founded by the guy who did Waze, mm-hmm. and um, 
part of why Waze was successful in literally having just the crowd map the world was it thought about the idea of credibility and the idea that credibility can percolate, you know, it can, it can propagate out amongst the graph. And so they're taking into consideration this question of, of how do people have influence and, and how can we have credibility that grows and evolves over time? So you're not having a centralized authority say you have credibility. It's saying, hey, can we watch how this person uh, interacts with the ecosystem and how other people validate them? Can we build systems that are, are you know, truth from the ground up instead mm -hmm. of truth from on high? And not based on an ad model. Uh, I think I think they're not based on an ad model. Mm. I think they're subscription based. So, so beyond that, if you were mm -hmm. designing the mm -hmm. ultimate social network for the future, mm -hmm. what else would be built into that? Mm. Um, so that that so I think it's always important to there's people talk about social media as a thing. Like it's really kind of two two main worlds. It's it's broadcast social media. So like Twitter, uh, you speak on Twitter not because you care about um, or like TikTok for example. Creators create on TikTok not because they're trying to reach grandma. It's because they're trying to reach as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. And so they'll repost their videos onto YouTube or onto Instagram. And um, people watch TikTok not mm -hmm. to follow any particular person, mm -hmm. but to see what's popular. Be entertained. Yeah, be yeah. entertained. But on places like Facebook, it's it's personal social media. Like you you post your baby photo not because you want a random person to see it, you want grandma to see it. And so we we I think we always have to be a little bit careful when we say like, what would the ideal social media be? Because it's a question of ideal for what. And, and I think in the case of personal social media, I really like human scaled personal media. So like my, my or social media, like my, my primary social media right now, I was about to hold up my phone, but my phone is mm -hmm. not over here. Um, I, I, my is, is Signal, it's like a group chat. You know, I have maybe 50 group chats. They have different themes. Like I have uh, one called Doom News. And it's like about war and destruction, you know, global warming and all those things. And people spread news on those themes um, versus like ones that are like your local pub. They're like one of my friends hosts for, you know, 40 of us or something. Uh -huh. and, and this is this question of like, what do we want to get from social media? We want connection. We want to have a lens on the world. We wanna stay in touch with people. And, and we don't need to have half a million person groups to do that. And so I think, for me, good social media is at the scale that, that the institutions that humans have evolved over time can function at. Mm. So like we have the concept of a dinner party. We have the concept of a cocktail party. We have the concept of a church parish, of a university. Like these are concepts of communication, like a, a, a convention, right? We have scale that goes up to maybe 25,000 people. Beyond that, um, it gets a lot more complicated. Like you do have to have these much longer conversations about governance. Yeah. And I think most of the things that we want to get out of social media can be accomplished in communities that have less than 25,000 people. Yeah, it's interesting though. I When mm -hmm. I hear you saying that, yeah. um, the missing piece for me yeah. as somebody who creates on the internet and yeah. has built a career uh, you know, premised upon this mm -hmm. free distribution, you know, yep. model and access to lots of people and this whole influencer economy mm -hmm. that's kind of emerged from it is the democratization of, mm. of the voice, mm. um, which has its positives and, and negatives. But, but I, I think there, there- I think you could still host content. So something like YouTube, you host the content and this question of like where people discuss the content, mm -hmm. you know, do you have half a right. million person groups? 
and 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 how what kinds of information end up propagating in a world where you have a megaphone that goes to a million people versus a megaphone that goes to twenty five thousand people, right? Depth versus breadth. Because because like when you have a twenty five thousand person community, like you can have like a Discord server, and you don't need an algorithm. Like humans mediate what information mm-hmm. you receive. Mm-hmm. Once you get above that, you know you end up in a you know, when you have a, a single channel. You know, like a Facebook group that has one stream and has half a million people, the only way you can actually navigate that content is with an algorithm. Yeah. And now you have to have conversations around what are my rights to resetting that algorithm? What are my rights to seeing that algorithm? You know, that kind of thing. As a data scientist, mm-hmm. a lot of people, you hear a lot of people saying, well, we don't even know how these algorithms work. Is yeah. that true? Like, oh, yeah. What parts of it do you understand mm-hmm. and which parts of it elude? even someone like yourself. So it's one of these things where, you know, um, this is a very young field. Like this is one of these things where I talk about in the book and and we can design a system and say, this is the data we put into it. Like we can, we can describe that, we can see it and we can, you know, when Elon published the algorithm, like he can see what provisions it says. But the problem is that all these things work together in ways that are unexpected. Like no one at Facebook, when they made the shift from saying, can we keep you on the platform as long as possible? to can we get you to react as much as possible? No one said, I think this is gonna lead to more extreme content. Like no one, no one set out to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I want to validate the things that Facebook has said. You know, they say, we don't recognize these allegations. We would never intend to do that. I don't think they did. But the problem is that when they learned there were these side effects and, and, and right now, the only people who get to ask questions about could there be side effects are the people inside the companies. Um, you know, people who have a vested interest in not knowing, mm-hmm. you know, when they learned that there were these consequences um, and, and to be clear, like the, the shift was big enough that like the CEO of Buzzfeed wrote to Facebook and said, I think something's broken. Jonah Peretti? Um, I, don't, I, yeah. I don't remember which, uh-huh. which gener- it was, would have been in like 2018 or 2019. Right. So I don't know which, which era that is. Yeah, that's, that's it's, it's wild. Yeah. And it's getting wilder, yeah. right? Like when we think about um, what went down in terms yeah. of election interference in 2016 and Ooh. in 2020, yeah. it feels kind of very, you know, kind of not that big of a deal in consideration with what we're contending oh, with as we future. as we you know careen yeah. towards the 2024 election. Um, everything is now suddenly yeah. infinitely more complicated due to the release of these various LLMs, yeah. the rapid growth of generative AI, deep fake technology, like the tools that are now yeah. available on the disinformation battlefield are just extraordinarily powerful. Mm-hmm. So how do you think about Totally. how those tools are going to be mm. deployed and what we can expect as we, you know, move towards November. So I think there's there's two areas year. that we, we need to really pay attention to. So so one is, um, you know, when Mark Zuckerberg, excuse me, when Elon Musk fired a lot of his safety teams, it really shifted the information environment. So one of my, um, uh, my husband and I like to watch YouTube together because we're nerdy. And there's a guy named Peter Zihand who follows a lot of the politics in Russia. And you know, he was talking about how it used to be his, one of his best data sources was Twitter. And when Elon came in, he ended up blocking a lot of people who were in, in Russia, but he also um, like, because he fired the teams that were looking for the coordinated behavior, 
you can really obviously tell the trolls on both sides of the conflict now just outweigh the real voices. And so one is we are investing less in catching bad actors. But the second is the way the tools have changed what's even possible with misinformation. So for, for context for people, one of the ways we used to catch those bots or like catch the networks of people who were pushing an information operation was we look for repetition. So, you know, there's always this interesting trade-off between how much distribution can you do and how much unique content can you do, right? So if you, you really don't wanna get caught, you write a different thing every time. Mm -hmm. Before the large language models came out, you, you were limited. You know, you, you weren't gonna reach a ton of people if every single thing you posted was unique. So you could start looking and saying, interesting, you keep sharing the same links or, or this group of people keeps saying very, very similar things or maybe even the same thing. Right, and it becomes yeah. clear that this There's is a, a bot farm. Yeah. Or, right. Um, or like China was particularly egregious at this because they would do things like they would have brigades of tens of thousands of people who would just like flood the comment threads on dissidents posts with like just the Chinese flag. You know, like, mm -hmm. like if you can tell this is all the same thing. Um, when you start having large language models, it's now possible to go and generate tens of thousands of unique pieces of content that all basically say the same thing, but say it in slightly different ways. Um, and that makes it a lot harder to see that coordination. Or for example, you know, um, part of what makes misinformation so pernicious is consensus reality is like a channel. You know, there's, there's not like a huge continuum of what you can talk about, there's like, you know, we can sit and come to a view of like reality if we talk long enough. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to misinformation, it can play in the entire field of ideas and whatever is like the most seductive or like uh, most incendiary on the algorithm, that's the thing that gets distributed. In a world with large language models, you can generate 10,000 different variations and send them to lots of different nooks and figure out what meme, like what idea is most seductive. And that, that just supercharges what can be done with a misinformation campaign. It's terrifying. It is. And that, that doesn't even get into all the deep fake stuff yeah. when you can mock somebody's voice or their likeness in a compelling yeah. way that's indistinguishable from reality, then our footing in what is real and what isn't real vanishes yeah. and things get really scary. Very quickly. So this is, you know, when I talked about the idea of the post news is like a really interesting approach in my mind. Um, you know, we, we, part of why I think we need to step away from content moderation as the solution or like censorship as the solution is it presumes that we can go in there and establish true and false, right? Mm -hmm. A different approach is to come in and say, hey, um, you know, information operations promoting lies is much more dangerous than most things. Um, it is very hard if you are an information operation operative to have a robust real set of relationships with people. Like one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea of how would you catch a fake person? Or like, how do you catch um, someone who is behaving in an inauthentic way? Um, and so if you are really acutely modeling and saying, hey, you, you have friends, you have a family, you have people you regularly mm -hmm. interact with who interact with you back we can tell you are an organic human. If you have a fake human, you know, it's like a, an LLM, they can try to guess what do real people look like, but they're not gonna be perfect. And if, they, if your whole network uses the same assumptions, 
now your network will stand out as being a clump of people who act in a slightly anomalous way. Yeah, I like that. I mean, the, the idea being traditionally, if you wanted to see whether someone's a real person, go to their Twitter account. Oh, yeah. they just created the account last week. They don't, you yeah. know, they, they, they don't follow anybody that I know or none of their followers or anybody that I know. Mm-hmm. They, it, this all seems manufactured. You can kind of get to the bottom of it mm-hmm. pretty quickly. What you're saying is create a matrix of credibility yeah. that establishes this person is real with a history of, you know, deep relationships and interactions with other credible people that um, over time establishes somebody mm-hmm. as a worthy yeah. distributor of information. Yeah, this person looks like they're a real person. They're having real conversations. And even if I disagree with them, the idea that they are a real person means they are less dangerous uh-huh. than they are part of an operation. But at the same time, it's like, yeah. we're having a conversation about just trying to figure out who's a real person or not. Like it's insane, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, it's We are living, in, and this is part of why we have to start having more transparency because we have tools where we can start saying, hey, we gotta, we gotta move this ball down the field. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is no economic incentive today to do those things on their own. So what are we gonna do, Francis? Yeah. Like, what's the solution here? How do, we, how do we put a better foot forward? So part of, I think the first step is, is, is just, and this is a big part about why I wrote the book. Like I'm, I think of the things that I regret the most about the rollout of my book is, is no conservative media has, has offered to like talk to me, right? Like I haven't been on Fox News. I haven't, uh, we've reached out to a number of-, of That's interesting. I, I would think they'd be happy to talk to you. I would think so about too. This. Cause like I've been saying consistently since the beginning, you know, content moderation is a flawed strategy but Facebook spent a huge sum of money on a whisper campaign saying, you know, she's a dark horse for censorship. Mm. Um, and so uh, I think the place we start from is an idea that people have the right to see how these systems work, right? Like I should have the right to know I am not allowed to sell my book on Facebook, right? We, the public should be able to see what content gets taken down. Right now, the only avenues that we have are you can appeal to the Facebook oversight board but it disappears into a black hole, right? Um, things can really change if we have transparency. And, and, and so we need to first work on how do we make that a bipartisan issue that we cannot have an information environment that is run by a private company in the dark and have a democracy. And the second thing is like, so how might we actually do that? So um, face, uh, Europe passed a law called the Digital Services Act mm-hmm. uh, last year. Um, I talk about it in the book. Um, that basically it, it sounds it sounds pretty blah. It's like, you know, if you know there's a risk to your platform, you gotta tell us about it. Like we know you get to operate behind the curtain, but we can't see. We'll never catch up with you unless you tell us what you already know. You have to tell us what your plan is for reducing that risk. And you need to give us enough data that we can see that you're making progress. And if we ask you a question, you have to give us an answer. And if we don't comply, so it's I think it's like ten percent of global revenues. Oh wow! Is the penalty that's, like it's a, that's a, for real. a real a real yeah. one. Though when you have a thirty-five percent profit margin, it's possible Facebook would come out and say we a, are now twenty-five. It's just a business expense. It's a business expense, right? Yeah. What is your your sense of the but viability it, of something like that passing yeah. in the United States? You know, it's interesting. If you'd asked me two months ago, I would have given you a much more negative answer. Um, but the uh, Surgeon General came out and, with their advisory, mm-hmm. you know, about a month ago. And just for context for listeners, there's been like under 15 Surgeon General advisories since the 60s. You know, there are things like cigarettes cause cancer, 
seatbelts save lives. Breastfeeding is good for babies. Like stuff that we kind of take as duh statements today. Um, but they, there was ambiguity before those advisories came out. And the, historically, when an advisory has come out, within two to three years after an advisory, something happens on average. And so um, I think there's a, a good chance that something's gonna happen around kids. And my hope is that we can scaffold towards a broader transparency law from there. What do you mean something's gonna happen around kids? Meaning know. there will be yeah. like a, a, a sort of political will to do something yeah. because of our shared concern of how these things are impacting, are impacting young people. mental health yeah, of yeah, kids, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, for, for context, like there, there have been laws that have been starting to pass. So like uh, Montana banned TikTok, which I don't support, um, or like Utah came out and, and passed a fairly extensive um, law about parental oversight of these systems. Um, you know, these are conservative states. And, and uh, the way I usually frame this for people is every societal issue has some finite number of kids that we're willing to harm. So in the case of cars, we put eight-year-olds in car seats. Like eight-year-olds in car seats saves like tens of kids. It's like 60 kids a year versus like having a six-year-old in a car seat. Think of how many fights with eight-year-olds about car seats take place every day because we put eight-year-olds in car mm -hmm. seats or like how much money is spent on eight-year-old car seats. But we, we as a society say those 60 lives are worth a huge amount to us. When it comes to things like guns, we're willing to accept many, many more kids being harmed because of the societal value that we place on, on, gar on guns. I think we are reaching a tipping point when it comes to kids, where if you look at things like the suicide rate, you know, it's, it's a hockey stick. And, uh, and, you know, the data is always like five years behind. So last year, the most recent data I could find was from 2017. This year, it's from 2018. Um, it was hockey sticking though up into there. And I don't see any reason why I wouldn't keep hockey sticking. Um, and I think there's just a real thing that uh, it is it's gonna be difficult for social platforms to say, we, we deserve to continue to operate the way we have given the level of harm right. it gets. It's an interesting tension mm -hmm. between freedom of speech and family values, yeah. particularly yeah. in conservative locales when you're mm -hmm. dealing with young people. Yep and their access to social media tools that we're discovering are very damaging mm -hmm. and how that butts up against that deep entrenched interest in unfettered free speech. And think about this for a second. Uh, you know, Some of those harms have nothing to do with speech. So like sleep deprivation, sleep quality has nothing to do with free speech. Right, right? but truncating access to a social mm -hmm. media site can sure. easily be interpreted as uh, you know an infringement on free speech. But imagine instead you came out and said, hey, you have to publish how many kids are online at 10, 11, midnight, one, two, 3 a.m. You know, we're not saying you have to cut kids right. off at 10. And then parents have the, dis have, or, have the right or, to make that decision or, also. Or like one of the things I often suggest is, you know, we've known for 20 years that if you make a site slower, people use it less. So like my, my husband always likes to joke, we all have willpower at noon. Right, like 10 a.m., everyone has willpower. But like by the time you get to 10 p.m., you know, that's when you start doom scrolling. You, know, you start dissociating and self-soothing with like your phone. Imagine a world where a kid stays up till 2 a.m. and the next day when they're kind of hungover on Instagram in math class, you know, a little thing pops up and says, when do you wanna go to bed tonight? And the kid says, 11. My mom wants me to go to bed at 10, I wanna go to bed at 11. And for two hours or three hours before 11, 
the app gets a little bit slower and a little bit slower and a little bit slower. Like around 11. But isn't every kid just gonna say, I'm gonna go to bed at 2 a.m.? I don't, I, don't th- I don't think so. Cause like kids feel bad the next day. Yeah. And if you could have a soft but landing. But it is so powerful. But that's cause we don't have a soft landing right now. We, we pop up a little thing saying it's 10 p.m. Do you wanna go to bed? And, and I don't know about you, I had dismiss, right? We don't have soft landings right now. It's tough. You're it's asking tough. kids to, to bring a knife to a gunfight. You yeah. know, with these incredibly powerful tools yeah. that are that are pitted against totally. developing 100%. minds. You know, even yeah. even the most conscious and well intentioned among us are yeah. powerless to fight its wiles. Yeah. You know, and so the fact that young people are contending with this, you know, we're we're running this no, massive experiment. You know, at the yeah. greatest scale imaginable, and it's very unclear how this is yeah. going to pan out. But early it's indications good. are it ain't fucking good. It's not good. So the thing that was terrifying for me about the Surgeon General Advisory was, you know, they said, if your kid uses social media for more than three hours a day, they're at um, like double or triple the risk of getting depression or anxiety. The average kid in the United States uses these products for three and a half hours a day, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Uh, 30% of kids say they're on till midnight or later, most weeknights, most school nights. Like you're totally right, like we are, um, when I went to the State of the Union, so I was a guest of the First Lady at the State of the Union, I don't know, a year ago, year and a half ago. And um, he said, we are running a national experiment on our children. And I, I had actually forgotten about that line until like when my book came out in one of the interviews I did, they played that soundbite. And I think if more people thought about it that way and said, you know, we're running a national experiment on our kids. Like what say should the public have in that experiment? I think we'd have very different conversations. Yeah, we should all have a say. And that kind of gets to the core theme of the book, which is agency. Like the book is Mm -hmm. called The Power of One. You might think that 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 refers to like you being this all powerful whistleblower, but it's really a call to action to all of us yeah. to get more engaged with this and yep. to get more involved and to realize that we all have more agency yeah, we're not than, powerless. Than, than, than we believe that we yeah. have. So talk a little bit about, you know, how to get people engaged and, and sure. active around these yeah. issues and, and where they can plug that um, enthusiasm. You know, I think it, it's it's interesting. Like um, I had an interview like two weeks ago with um, a relatively young woman. She's like in her twenties. And, and it kind of felt like we had, I had stumbled into a therapy session. Like I spent like a solid 20 minutes of that interview, just trying to convince her that the, there's hope, uh-huh. right? That, that, that there things can so be done. Because she's so down the oh, yeah. social media addiction oh, yeah. rabbit hole. She, she's like, how is there any chance we're ever gonna stop these giant corporations? And, and one of the things I, I pointed out to her was, you know, I think the first, the first step is that we have to believe that change could be possible. And the, the thing I, I told her was like, you know, one of the first quotes in the book is from a guy named Vaclav Havel, who wrote The Power of the Powerless. Mm-hmm. So for, for those of you who are not Cold War Studies minors. Um, I, I'm old enough to remember. Yeah. Uh, and in the in the Soviet Union, you know, if we had gone to anywhere in the Soviet Union in 1960 and said, "Will the Soviet Union fall?" No one would have said that. They'd be like, well, "There's this like iron iron grip," and and he said, "You know, there's this this uh, you know, you can feel like there's no potential to change because the Soviet Union figured out a way to glue things, like to make them stuck." You know, instead of being a totalitarian state where they just ruled by force, he said, they're a post-totalitarian state. You know, they, they, they rule by ideology. 
that if you cross the ideology, the ideology just heals around you. So in a system where if you are powerful or you're powerless, if you speak out, the system just heals around you and you know shunts you to the mm-hmm. side. You know, what is left? Like, what is your power? What is your agency? What is your power left? And he says, you know, you start by valuing yourself and saying, I am a human being and I have dignity. You know, I think if we started more conversations on social media, just from that simple of a lens, like saying, you know, right now, Facebook is not really indicating they value our dignity. You know, what, what, would, what would social media look like if it did, it did look like they valued our autonomy and our choices? You know, for example, you mentioned Netflix. When I was sick, I watched a lot of um, really depressing Netflix. And I think I didn't even realize that I had like gotten into the darker depths mm. of, of the catalog. Like the true crime Dahmer oh, stuff? Oh no, or? Like, like, I don't know, <laughs> moody Scandinavian dramas, oh, yeah. you know, like you can be real dour on Netflix if Scandy you want crime. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. But when I started getting better, you know, I'd open up Netflix and I'd be like, nothing appeals to me on Netflix. Right. Like, ever, like I, I try to search for comedies. I try if to search Netflix for only knew that I feel better now. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you're, you're thinking like, I should, I need to fix this algorithm. Well, I, I didn't even think about it <laughs> until I moved in with some new people during COVID. So I moved to Puerto Rico and moved in some new people. They had their own Netflix account mm. and it was delightful. Like there was all this wonderful stuff on Netflix, um, but I hadn't even realized that I had gotten into a corner of the algorithm. Right, like, like imagine a world where- And you of all people. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. So imagine, you know, imagine we said, hey, step one, I matter as a human, I have dignity. I, d- I deserve to be treated with respect. You can imagine things like, you know, maybe we should have the right to reset algorithms. You know, you shouldn't have to give up all your watch history and all your like ratings. Like, like I have, a, I have a, a watch list of stuff I wanna watch in the future. Should I have to walk away from my data in order to get the algorithm to reset. And this becomes like a really big deal when it comes to kids, because like when I've talked to therapists about kids with say an eating disorder or who have been self-harming, you know, kids are forced to choose between their pasts, you know, all their friends, all these moments of their life they've documented and an algorithm that threatens their future. Mm, that's really right? interesting. It seems like an mm-hmm. easy fix. Sure. You would be able to do that yeah. because imagine the young person or anybody who's yeah. contending with some kind of mental health issue, eating disorder or otherwise, they realize they need to get well, they engage in some kind of recovery process, yeah. they're getting better, but when they open up their app, right they're getting in. exposed to yeah, the same exactly. content that fed that you know maladaptive behavior pattern. Yeah. That's not great. Yeah. So, so and so just, they're faced with the choice. It's a, it's that yeah. whole thing of like it's on the user. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so what they have to delete their account or unfriend yeah. everybody yeah. in order to reset it when there could be some healthier tools. A happy medium. Yeah. And I think that's like the recurrent theme that I want people to walk away from is that we have been sold by the social media companies that there are only these very stark absolutes like extremes. And there, there could be like happy mediums, you know, things where we say, you know, let's design to put control back in the user's hands or to make patterns that were invisible, visible. And, and I, it, you know, that's not enough. Like we need companies to have to pay for social costs too, but they're like really easy first steps. So, so the second thing is, you know, we've, we've started from change is possible. I matter, I deserve to be respected to, you know, taking care of other people, right? Like coming in and saying, if you have, and this is part of what Vaclav Havel talked about, he said, you know, start just by saying, 
I refuse to let you humiliate me. I refuse to let you devalue me. Second is I'm gonna care for my friends and family, right? Like I'm, I'm gonna also remind them they matter. You know, I, I think until we get social media that is safer, we have to start saying, I'm gonna, we need to redefine some of the rituals of what it means to care for each other. Mm. You know, uh, talk to your parents, talk to your, your kids, talk to your friends and family about how they use social media, right? How would you feel if you found out your friend died because they were getting sucked down a rabbit hole of, of despair and, and you didn't know, right? And I, I think it's just one of these interesting things where like, I don't know, maybe I'm like a radical and I'm like, what if we said, hey, I'll, I'll show you my Instagram feed if you show me yours, right? Right? Like, like maybe I'm a radical because I'm like, what if we just tried it? You know, like what, how would, how would the world change? Yeah. You know? And we're all operating on some level on this low grade assumption that our feed looks like our friend's feed. Exactly. But we're all living in our yeah, own siloed, unique like worlds as a result of, of these uh, My My platforms. husband is much better at Twitter than I am. Like he much more actively engages in it. I think he has more time than I do, more patience, whatever. Um, I like swimming in the ocean more than he does. Does he still have a bunch of troll accounts? Oh, he does. <laughs> Oh, uh, he, he doesn't have as many. He he actually okay. has he has a, a check he has a blue check mark now, and he actually uh-huh. uses his own name because he he can't just you know troll all the time. Because uh, when when Elon came in, he lost like twenty or thirty troll accounts. Um, Interesting. Because uh, my my husband used to have a hobby of he really likes finding Chinese information operations and then needling them. So he likes to make them like interesting, like ask them very right. reasonable questions and watch whatever hilarious answers they say back. But he he lost um, he lost like twenty accounts when Elon came through and did the first wave of house cleaning. Mm. I lost my blue check, and I have oh. not subscribed. Mm-hmm. And I found my uh, my use and engagement on mm-hmm. that platform to have gone from being my favorite place to yep. engage with people to almost nothing. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think the enough people left that there's a very different tone. Yeah, it just it, it feels yeah. very different to me. Um, but for what I was going to say was like when I say this idea of like you know what if we looked at each other's feeds? Like uh-huh. I actually lived that. Like my my husband because he engages with Twitter more, he mostly does it for like national. Like his his account is much more like national security news oriented. Like I literally like we lay in bed and when he starts like doom scrolling late at mm-hmm. night, like I'll sit and like you know enjoy his feed with him. And occasionally I annoy him because I'm like, I wanna read that. So you have to slow down. Um, uh, but we can do these things. It's not like they, they have to be alien actions. Yeah, somebody suggested, I'm not taking credit for this and I'm yeah. sure you've thought of it, um, a great tool to add to Twitter mm-hmm. or other platforms would be when you visit somebody's profile page, mm. you can hit a button see and then strange. you see their feed. Yeah. Like you're, so you could live in that person's yeah. experience and see what they're seeing. I think that would be, I think it'd be cool. very cool. If people could opt into it. Yeah, and then yeah. you can go, oh, yeah. this is what this person's reading all yeah. the time. And that's maybe why they're posting in this way. Yeah. I understand this person a little bit better than I did prior. Yeah, that'd be cool. So in the interim, while we're wrestling with all of these mm-hmm. problems, existential and practical, like what are what are some best practices mm. around how to interface with these tools? Like we need to understand just how yeah. powerful they are, totally. how addictive they yeah. are, the many 
pitfalls and risks of engaging with them, but they are part mm-hmm. of our lives and our identity. And, yeah. and you know, we're not gonna, nobody's gonna become a Luddite yeah. or, you know, delete their account. I mean, some people may delete their accounts, but for the most part, these are things we have to figure out some kind of healthy symbiosis with. Yeah. And, and I wanna acknowledge like, you know, when I talk about this idea of like, I would work at Facebook because we can't leave people behind. Right, you know, there's people who, for whom Facebook is the internet. The flip side of that is there's lots of people in the United States who don't have the luxury of getting to do a lot of socializing in person. You know, socializing in person costs money. Like to get there, maybe you have to buy food to be in the space. Maybe there's other things. We keep devaluing, um, getting rid of the public spaces where we could interact with each other. You know, people don't join bowling leagues anymore or garden clubs, mm. that kind of thing. Um, and so there's a bunch of people whom even in the United States, we need to not leave behind. Um, but the next thing I would say is, um, I saw this app recently on, on when I was you know, on my book tour a couple weeks ago um, that I, I loved, which was it, it just, um, when you open any social media account, it tells you how many times you've opened it today. And a little thing goes across the screen very slowly that counts down like five, four, three, two, one. And then asks you, do you really want to open Instagram? Mm-hmm. Like, do you really want to open YouTube? And I, I love that idea of, of just giving people- A little a bit pause, of friction. A little friction. Yeah. Um, because um, one thing that people do is they use these as like digital pacifiers. You know, you're feeling a little anxious, you're feeling a little uncomfortable. Instead of sitting and just enjoying the silence, or like watching the, the the scenery go by in your Uber or whatever, you know. I you, we pull out our phones and we just we immediately dive in. Any kind of moment of intentionality gives you a chance to make more of a real choice. What is that app called? You know, I I, I if we'll I had figure my phone it out. We'll put it in the we'll put it in the show notes. I, I really like that like idea. It. I haven't heard of that. I've heard of. Yeah. Other, you know, other sort of mm-hmm. apps that you can put on your phone that you can set hours where mm-hmm. certain apps don't work, et cetera. Um, I think it's important to reclaim our boredom. You know, if we wanna be able to express ourselves creatively and do our best thinking and be able to respond mm-hmm. to the world around us and be available for the people we care about, we have to uh, reprioritize the importance of rumination and quietude and mm-hmm. those moments mm-hmm. and I'm as guilty as anybody you know like I'll fill every opportunity you know standing in line or or what have you to check the phone and mm-hmm. and you know lose myself a little bit I'm like I'm powerless yeah you know it's really hard I have a lot of compassion for people that are suffering and feel powerless to you know make yeah. any kind of adaptive behavior change around these things I think there's some other low high, low hanging fruit it's like charge phones not in the bedroom that's you know, a tough one. You know, kids should charge their phones in the parents' bedroom. Yeah. Adults should. Once the cat's out of the bag, as somebody with a bunch of kids, like it's yeah. hard to you put yeah. the genie back in the bottle yeah. on that one. Well, that's why the kids' phones can charge in your room, but like your phone could charge in the kitchen or something. Mm-hmm. You know, you can buy an alarm clock for 10 bucks. It will wake you up in the morning. Um, that's one of those ones that, that I'm really, um, uh, in, I need to do it, right? Like my vice is, is I doom scroll late at night and, and my husband totally calls me out on it. And so I need to like start charging the, the phone in the kitchen mm-hmm. probably. The, the final thing I kind of want to mm-hmm. ask you about is, is this conflict or tension between 
immediacy. Like we need solutions. Right. Like we've yeah. got, you know, they're, they're like, as you, like, as I open up this conversation with this idea yeah. that if we don't fix this, tens of millions of people are gonna die, your own words. Yeah. Um, there is a sense of urgency around solving these problems. Yeah. While also simultaneously like appreciating mm -hmm. long-termism, like we're in for the long haul here. Yeah. We gotta get through this uncomfortable adolescent phase and, and, and learn how to do better. Um, both those things are true mm -hmm. and important. Yeah. How do you, how do you kind of, as an advocate now, who's mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. public spotlight, yeah. talking about this stuff all the time, you know, what is the message that you want to um, put out there in terms mm. of what we need to do now mm. to address the immediacy so aspect of I, this? I totally get. Like, I, I think I frustrate people because I don't come out and demand more sooner. Right, so like I know when I first came out, um, a friend of mine who who is very active in this space, you know, he was like, "You need to pick like one thing that you want them to do. Like maybe it's like cut the reshare chains. You need to pick one thing mm -hmm. and push to get that one thing because you're not going to get anything more than that." Um, and I, part of why I have resisted that so hard is is like I think the problem of social media is there weren't enough people sitting at the table. Right, like there are all these trade-offs and all these externalities, these social costs. And there weren't enough people who actually got to have a say in the process. Like it was made internally by a very small number of people who had, were working under very constrained um, incentives. And, um, you know, we have to start with transparency because I really believe having a democratic conversation about how to move forward is so essential. And so it's a little, it's a little hard because like I fully acknowledge the house is on fire and like coming in and saying, we should have smoke detectors. Like I totally get that's not satisfying. But right now there are so few people in the world who get to participate in a conversation about how to move forward. I don't think it would, I, I think you'd be swapping out one dictator, you know, Mark mm -hmm. for another dictator, me, if you were just like Francis fix it for us, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so we really need to immediately get transparency we, we're, we're gonna keep working at Beyond the Screen on things around like, how do we onboard and, and up-level, you know, uh, concerned parents, litigators, regulators, investors, because all of those actors together are how safety happens, right? It's investors saying, we need to manage for long-term risk. It's litigators that say, we need to create the right set of incentives. Mm -hmm. And so I think all in, um, you know, we start with transparency and then we begin the hard work of actually figuring out where do we go from yeah. here? What is um, the floor? Are you doing your own kind of like youth education, red teaming with social mm. media projects where you get kids in and you're like, design your own social, okay, what happens when that person mm. says that? Mm. What do you do? Mm. Like, how would you fix that? Like creating literacy mm. in, in like a generation of young people who are yeah. obviously gonna be inheriting all of this yeah. um, at the earliest, you know, phases of their development seems to be, I mean, that's a longer term yeah. solution to this, but I really like that idea yeah. of injecting that awareness in as mm. early as possible. I think there's two kinds of education that are really urgent. So, so one is, um, is, is that, so did you, did you do high school journalism? No. Like, no or like, mm -mm. yeah. So there, there exists in the world, high school newspapers, there even exist junior high school newspapers. 
So hot take, do you think there are any good junior high news, newspapers in the world? I have no idea, probably I, not. I think almost certainly not. <laughs> but, I mean, but I mean, like, yeah. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to rain on them. Like, mm-hmm. that's not why we do it. Like, it's, we're, not, we're not funding those. You're exposing them to yeah. the principles around yeah. journalism. We're saying, yeah. demo, you know, journalism plays such an important role in a democracy, right? So the first pass at history, you know, it's uh, digesting information, helping people get to have a chance to have opinions. Um, that we believe we need to expose the broadest number of people possible to the process of journalism. We are shifting over our information environment from one where it's all about a structured process with journalistic traditions and ethics and and protocols to one that's decentralized or that's run by algorithms. But we don't have a way of like actually beginning to expose people to those choices. And so one of the things that we wanna do is, is build a lab bench Kind of like, um, did you ever take chemistry in high school? Mm-hmm. So like the chemistry lab bench you used in high school is remarkably similar to what you would use in college or if you're a graduate student or if you're a full-blown chemist. Mm. That lab bench facilitates a lot of levels of, of understanding. You know, if we had a simulated social network, we could have, you know, high school data science clubs where kids could argue over, you know, should you have to click on a link to reshare it? And you could play the ads team and I could play the new user team and they could play the non-English mm-hmm. user team or the kids team. So you're, 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 yeah. you're, you're bringing the debate ecosystem into this or as well. Or the model UN, yeah. you know, or mock trial, uh-huh. you know, like, like how do we make kids say, hey, actually these products I use can be built in a very large number of ways. You know, there are choices being made. There's consequences of these choices. And to be real clear, every single time we change them, it's not like it's either good or it's bad. It's it, some, some of those stakeholder groups are gonna benefit, some are not. Do we still ship? Mm. Um, so that's, that's one kind of knowledge that I really want, like we're very actively building towards and we love support if anyone wants to give us support. Yeah, so what is but, the, what is the, the website second, for that? Oh, um, so our website is beyondthescreen.org mm-hmm. um, and please reach out. Also my email is francis at francishaugen.com. But, um, but the second kind of knowledge I like to think of it as like um, community governance, right? Or, or, or like in addressing the idea that we are actually very rapidly stripping um, social capital from our children. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, I was told by um, uh, a member of either like the American Academy of Pediatrics or the Academy of Pediatric Psych- Psychologists mm-hmm. that there now exists nonprofits that teach 14 year olds how to play pickup basketball. So take a step back for a second. Like when you and I were, were kids, there were not startups that taught kids how to play pickup no, basketball. No, but there wasn't a need for that. So why wasn't there a need for it, right? Because we weren't at home staring at screens. We were out at the playground and somebody's older brother taught us how to do it. And so I think what happened was to, it used to be, if you wanted to play, you just showed up. And sometimes there weren't enough kids. And so like, you know, the 14 year olds had to let the 12 year old play. They're like, he's smaller, she's smaller, not very good, but we need one more person. Today, those 14 year olds all coordinate on their phones. They show up at 4 p.m. on Tuesday. They always have enough people and they never let the 12 year old play. Mm. And so now you have to figure out how to do intentionality around propagating that knowledge. We are facing, I think a really serious crisis amongst teenagers because for two years, we shut the schools down, right? The, the juniors and seniors that were supposed to socialize the freshmen, sophomores, 
They didn't have right. those moments. Um, and now the juniors and seniors are those old freshmen and sophomores, right? Like we're, we're, we're cutting- They the weren't indoctrinated desolate. into yeah. that mentorship mentality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I really felt this in college, right? Like I was part of the first graduating class at a, at a college. And so I meant we never had upperclassmen that taught us how to be adults, right? Like we had to go and be seniors for four years. And I don't think it was good for any of us. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this interesting question of like, let's say we went into high schools and we said, hey, we're gonna teach you about network effects. Like the idea of you guys are locked in right now. And we're gonna teach you about the business model. And we're gonna teach you about the idea that like, if you want to decide to spend more time in person with your friends, they have to make that same decision at the same time or you don't get to, right? Okay, now that you all know that, that you're not, you know, just leaves floating in the river, like you are people who can make choices. Let's hold an assembly and say, hey, let's just start out. How does this make you feel? Like have the kids vote and just put it up on the screen. You know, how does it make you feel when you use social media? Because most of you say it doesn't make you happy. How much time do you spend on social media? Like let's check on our phones together. How much time do you spend? Okay, if you could set a rule for the whole school, on how much time you're gonna spend online, what would you choose? Are you a three hour day school? Are you a four hour day school? Are you a one hour day school? Because every hour you're on there, you're not with your friends. Um, what, what would happen? And like, that's like an area I really wanna play out in mm -hmm. where like this question of can kids intervene and start teaching each other social skills? Can they start, can we intervene at the level of a community instead of a single kid or a single family. Well, that speaks to agency and mm -hmm. also this idea of self-regulation because ultimately it's, it, it is, as much as it's, it shouldn't be on the individual, it is on the individual and we have yeah. to make these choices ourselves mm -hmm. about how we're gonna engage with these things. And you know, the younger you can get to somebody and, and give them that sense of agency where, mm -hmm. listen, you're a sentient human being and I trust you and you have to figure out how to be yeah. responsible for yourself. Like, what do you want? And engaging yeah. with a young person at that level about these things, I think is, is really um, can be a powerful thing and should be part of like yeah. elementary school curriculum. Yeah. Um, you have a hopefulness in how you're approaching this. And I think that hopefulness is rooted in an understanding that change takes time. And, mm -hmm. and so this is not, you know, hey, yeah. I came out and I testified and I went on 60 minutes and my work here is done. Mm. This is perhaps work that has no end, but is worthy of, mm -hmm. you know, devoting your time, attention, energy, and, and, and life to. And when you think of, the whistleblowers over the years, you mentioned auto safety, obviously Ralph Nader, he's sort of a talisman for you. Um, there aren't that many. I mean, there's Edward Snowden in the NSA, mm -hmm. there's Daniel Ellsberg, and you know, we all saw Russell Crowe uh, portray Jeff Jeffrey Wigand in The Insider. Uh, and, and there's you, like there's these sort of iconic figures that don't pop up that often mm. and create kind of a bit of a lightning bolt moment but the groundswell of change in the aftermath of that mm. is something that we need to appreciate does take time. I, I would say the transformative moment for me that was kind of like the, the moment my life pivoted was um, uh, I really like, so I'm, I'm, I'm a big nerd. Uh, when I travel, I love maritime museums and railroad museums. Uh -huh. I'll show you, I, I, <laughs> I'm odd. Um, I really like museums about cities. Uh -huh. Like I like places that tell their own stories. And I really like museums about individual people because like you, you get to like, 
I really like um I really like understanding people. Like I really like connecting with them. And you know, I've been to ones about artists, political figures, architects, like, you know, I just enjoy people. And I my one of my favorite single person museums is the Museum for Indira Gandhi in Delhi. Mm. Um so I was in Delhi for a wedding and um uh, it's a really cool museum because they tell her life story from like letters and newspaper clippings that are in context to that moment. So it's all contemporaneous documents and like artifacts. And they had this article about her when she was five. So she's the only child of Nehru, who was like one of the founders of India. And this article is about her leading a march of children through the streets of Delhi when she was five. So like think, thousands of children, it was called the monkey army. And one, it shows you how different parenting standards were a long time ago, because who would let their child go in a mass of like thousands of five-year-olds mm. today? But, but two, it was like a catalyst for me because I think she was in her forties when India became free, right? And I had never, like I had watched the Gandhi movie or whatever and been like, oh, like, you know, Gandhi made salt in the ocean and India became free or whatever. But I hadn't thought about the idea, it took them decades, like it took them like 70 years to become free. Mm -hmm. And if you had asked anyone in the world in 1875, will India, will the British ever leave India? No one in the world, except for like, you know, the hundred people gathered from the Indian National Congress would have said, there's a chance. And I think today, like I, I have a line in the book, you know, fatalism is a sign that someone is trying to steal your power, right? Like when we say there's no chance we can do something like, um, so much innovation comes from like some crazy person saying, what if it was different? And like, I look at it as, you know, we are going through a transformational moment. Like the idea that our economy could go from being transparent to opaque, like we will wrestle with this for decades. Um, and so it's, it's easy for me to get up every day because it, it, takes, it takes time. Mm. Any last um, thoughts? Like, sure. is there anything else that you think people get wrong about you. Mm. Um, you've done a million interviews. You've got this book out now. Interesting. Um, obviously, you know, I was a lot of people are talking about yeah. the ideas yeah. that you're talking yeah. about, but they're also talking about you. Yeah. Is there anything that frustrates you around maybe some narratives mm. that get out there? Um, I've really liked this conversation. Like one of the things that's nice about podcasts yeah. is you get to have like such a larger depth. Like mm -hmm. you get to talk about such a broader set of things. Um, a lot of the press coverage in the United States has been, you know, in seven minute or sure. 15 minute chunks. And so we ask the same questions over and over again. Um, I think the thing, probably the thing that's most frustrating for me um, in terms of like narratives is uh, in, we have always like, we, we've really, like my nonprofit has really struggled to fundraise because there's a perception that people have given us lots and lots of money. Mm -hmm. And um, if people realized how little we had been given and like I've had to pay like out of pocket for even basic staff for things, I think they would be really shocked. Right. Because there's this perception that like- Well, Piero yeah. Midiar oh, yeah, is yeah, funding yeah. you. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, the, uh, so his, his nonprofit Luminate um, is, has never given me anything other than like logistical support. Oh yeah, that was one of those conspiracy theories right. that there was like the billionaire. Yeah, he, well, he's, background. for people that don't know, he's yeah. one of the PayPal guys. Yeah made a bunch of money and is a big philanthropist now. Um, but when, when but his it? nonprofit yeah. Yeah. gave you aid, but it wasn't like yeah. he had any yeah. 
they, they, personal involvement. They paid in me, yeah. paid, they paid um, for plane tickets to Europe and uh, like people to introduce me to like um, politicians and stuff in, in Europe. But like, it's one of these things where it's like, you know, my salary is paid on public speaking. So like, if you want to invite me to a conference, that's always lovely. Cause that currently is like the thing that pays for my assistant and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's probably the thing that frustrates me the most because like- Or people think if you have a book out yeah, that you're I'm, a millionaire. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sure there's anything else where I haven't gotten asked it. But um, you got that sweet crypto cash, right? Uh, What's I, going I on love, there? I love that that meme. Oh, I, I I would say I've I I I'm I, I was raised on Vanguard. You know, like Vanguard mutual funds. Like uh -huh. You should have a diversified portfolio, and I I totally believe you should have like five to ten percent in crypto. But that is not a life changing amount of crypto. <laughs> but right? you moved to Puerto Rico. You're part of like the yeah. whole you know yeah. the, the the bleeding edge of the crypto movement. Yeah. No. I well, I lived in San Francisco during COVID, and it was really cold and um, really lonely. Right, like I, I, um, I talk about in the book, I had to relearn to walk and I still have um, very bad pain in my legs. Mm, the neuropathy um, from the Because I, I, I used to be, I, it got bad enough that I was paralyzed beneath my knees. Yeah, and I can, I can hike all day now, I can walk on my toes, but like um, every, whenever I'm cold and LA today is cold. I know you guys don't believe that, but you know, 70 is cold. Um, in Puerto Rico, I can leave my AC off in my office and it just stays 85. And like that costs a thousand dollars a month in San Francisco. Right. And so like, uh, I can't speak to any of the reasons why my other friends moved there, but like I moved there because like a bunch of people were like, oh, we're gonna go on an adventure. Um, and now I'm there. Yeah, you've been but, there for a while too. Yeah, you like great. it down there? I, I love it. Like yeah, um, cool. um, in, in Puerto Rico, you can live on the beach. Mm -hmm. Like you can, you can have a condo on the beach where you open your windows and you hear the water and like my husband and I, we go swimming four to five days a week in the in the ocean, and we we have this thing we call descending uh, descending body bodies of water of descending size, where we go in the ocean, and at some point we get a little cold and we go to the pool at our condo, and it's like one or two degrees warmer, and then we have um, an inflatable hot tub, which sounds like a ludicrous object, but for two hundred fifty dollars we got a, a Coleman hot tub on sale. And it only goes up to like 104, which it turns out is hot enough. Hot enough yeah. Right. Um, but like, I don't know. Like, I, I, I can't imagine living anywhere else. Like, we get to do that, you know, four days a week. Good for you. And we could never afford to do that in like Los Angeles. Yeah. So um, that's great. Yeah. I appreciate Puerto you Rico coming. Puerto Rico welcomes you. Yeah, right. I, I've been there. Yeah. I love. It. I like it there. Yeah. It's super nice. I, I, I get the appeal. Yeah. I get the appeal. Um, it was great to talk to you. Thank you. I think that you're courageous and the example that you're setting is, is oh, inspirational. And I think the work that you're doing is vitally important. So mm. uh, I appreciate you coming mm -hmm. here to share. Um, the book, The Power of One is out everywhere, easy mm -hmm. to find. We'll mm -hmm. link it up in the show notes and all of that. Um, and uh, I'm at your service. Delightful. There's anything My I can pleasure. ever do for you. Yeah, Thank it's, you it's really amazing what you're doing and uh, I'm here to support you. So appreciate Thank you. So you. Thank you. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, 
including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com, where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube, and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated, and sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is, of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, The Meal Planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Cale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg, graphic and social media assets courtesy of Daniel Solis, as well as Dan Drake. Thank you, Georgia Whaley, for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love. Love the support. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste.